You're listening to Omega Man Radio. T minus 10, 9, 8, and the clock is operating. We're underway. The show is about to begin. You're listening. You're listening to the Omega Man Radio Network. about our next guest. It's be my pleasure and honor to welcome Ragnar Benson on the program tonight. Uh, again, this is a live program. I want to say shouts out to everybody listening around the world, our friends over in Canada, Australia. We've got people tuning in from Netherlands. We've got Germany. We've got Hawaii, Singapore, Hong Kong, um, and more and more folks tuning in every day. Thanks to you. Get the word out about Omega Man Radio. We broadcast nightly, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Sunday, and then we're now doing our our double shows many nights, 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern Time. We're also rebroadcasting on American Voice Radio Network Satellite, and we're on WWCR Shortwave on Sunday afternoons. Without further ado, we're going to get on Ragnar Benson. Uh, for those of you who do not know Ragnar Benson, he is probably the most prolific survivalist author of all time. I call him the granddaddy of preparedness. He's been around a long time. And uh, when you've been around a long time, you've got a lot of wisdom, and he's put it into books. And I remember buying some of Ragnar's books uh, back in the 90s, and uh, they were in my uh, library. Very informative books. And uh, here's a man that speaks from experience. He has been to 90 different countries in a time period of between three and a half weeks and three and a half years. That's a lot of travel. Uh, He spends uh, at least eight months out of the year overseas traveling. Uh, You know, that's one of my favorite pastimes. When I can do it, I certainly love to do it. And I've only scratched the the surface of this world. He's been all over. We're going to be talking about some of his recent trips, some of his travels to places like Russia um, that many Americans have not seen yet. But, you know, we have all these formed opinions of these places from our um, media, you know, which is nothing but um, programming, folks. You know that. We can't get the uh, straight truth out of TV. I don't even have a TV anymore. I don't get my uh, information from there. 
and I hope you don't trust it either. Uh, you've got to have an alternative means of information. That also means books. So thank God for our First and Second Amendment rights. And uh, before I start preaching, let me get Regnar on the line. Stand by. Regnar, how are you tonight? Well, I'm getting along pretty good. That's certainly a very uh, laudatory uh, introduction. And I might point out, uh, in terms of your not having a TV, uh, tell me true or false. For every hour you watch TV, you lose one IQ point. Uh, maybe ten. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's worse now. I've never had anybody uh, argue with me about that. That is that is so true. Um, and, you know, um, today, you know, the youth don't even read anymore. I don't know what's up with that. You know, you don't, they, don't, they don't read. They don't go outside and, you know, play, throw the football. Um, don't run what a trap we... line. They don't go hunting. Oh, man, yes. They, uh, when we were kids, uh, one of the things that we did uh, extensively, in fact, my, one of my first real jobs where I got paid for was working for the local powder monkey uh, 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 doing contract blasting. Yes, sir. Yeah. Wow. Can you imagine a 13-year-old kid doing that now? <laughs> I don't even know what it is. Oh, my goodness. Well, uh, well, we set dynamite, and we dynamited out at cement walls and, wow. and uh, uh, knocked down buildings, and we uh, cleared stumps from a parking lot and that sort of thing. Oh, my thing. goodness. Uh, you were literally raised on the farm. Now, uh, how old are you now, Ragnar? 72. Okay, so you have been around... Uh, quite a bit of time. You were there uh, before even World War II. And, yeah, um, but I don't, I remember that vaguely, just vaguely, vaguely. Uh, my recollection of it is that uh, we spoke German at home at uh, the time of World War II, and then that quit uh, just uh, dramatically. Yes. And uh, I can remember listening to the radio, and my mom and, and dad uh, being intimately aware of the uh, cities and places and rivers and so forth in Europe that the uh, news announcer was talking about and talking about, well, we have uh, sent soldiers over and taken this city and taken that city, and it was we did this. It was uh, they identified, although they were uh, uh, immigrants, uh, they identified with the U.S. and they were part of the U.S. effort in World War II. Yes, sir. Now, you um, you were raised up on the farm, and you basically learned a lot of skills that uh, most people have no uh, understanding of whatsoever. I mean, you know, today, what do we do? We go to the grocery store every three days to buy our food. Uh, we have no idea what it means to milk a cow. Um, if you fish, it's just for sport. Uh, what's well, happened to America? Speak for yourself, Bruce. Speak for <laughs> yourself. We were just up in Alaska. The first day we got 580 pounds of fish, which we turned into fillets and are, are now in the freezer. But uh, uh, they, one of the, I think one of the important skills that uh, we don't have today and that uh, my uh, children all have is how to butcher. In other words, how to take a goat or um, a beef or whatever, a sheep or whatever, and turn it into a usable uh, cuts of uh, meat. Even how to butcher a uh, rabbit or a chicken or a turkey. We, do, we don't know that today. That's oh, I, I thought they all came like that already. <laughs> you know, that's what yeah, most people think. They have no idea. You've got to have yeah. the skill to go from the cow to your hamburger. Yeah, exactly. 
and they they have no concept of how how to do that. Now you learned all kind of skills on the farm. What was it like uh, as a young man growing up? Um, what did your dad we have poor. you in charge of doing? Well, we were poor. Uh, my uh, my folks themselves by that time were living in Europe, and so I uh, was raised with grandparents who were actually Russian immigrants. And uh, and we uh, during the cold of the winter it got pretty grim, and many uh, I can remember many Decembers and Januaries when our only income was from my trap line. Oh my goodness! Now when you say so, trap uh, line, were you, were you trapping um, what type uh, of? Uh, we were trapping mink mostly. If it warmed up a bit, we might uh, get a coon or a possum now and then. Skunks was another one. Fox, we caught a number of fox. Weasel. Uh, oh my were uh, common, uh, commonly what? caught muskrats, a lot of muskrats. Now, what were you doing? Were you taking them for the skins, or did you eat some of the meat also? Uh, well, if the uh, uh, to this day, I think one of my favorite uh, 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 meals is muskrat. Really? Uh, if it, yeah, if it's made with a nice uh, white raisin gravy and so forth, but the muskrat's got to be one. See, a trapper usually tries to catch the critter and... Uh, kill it as uh, soon as possible, usually by drowning. Well, I didn't like to eat uh, a drowned muskrat, but if I did happen to get one alive and could shoot it or knock it in the head with my axe, why, uh, then we would always take that home and eat it. Well, I imagine if you gave me some A1 or H Heinz 57, I would probably uh, throw it on there and be taste all right. <laughs> <laughs> I think you would like it. The muskrat is very much like very lean duck, no grease to it. Oh my goodness! It's uh, now, did, did you all go hunting on the farm and uh, you know go after deer and small game? Oh yeah, we yeah we did hunted deer a lot. Mm-hmm. So you learned the yeah. skills of okay how to how to actually catch your own food, and then from there, um, you know, and gardening. Uh, Let's not forget about gardening, Bruce. Tell That's me about important. that. What experience did you have with that as a young man? Well, uh, we uh, I've had a garden um, every year that I can remember. I don't think there's a year in my life where we didn't have a garden. And the important thing, I was just telling a fellow the other day, uh, actually a computer technician, he came out and he wanted to talk about survival. And he wanted him to talk about using his computer for survival. Well, I don't know how in the world he'd do that. But I was telling him he needs to plant a garden because it takes about five years in any given location to learn how to raise a garden in that particular soil type and climate. Oh, my goodness. Uh, you might have to have trial and error for a year or two, right? Yeah, um, exactly. Or a disaster. <laughs> sure. Yeah. My goodness. Uh, but you all were set up to actually live off the land, trap your food, uh, grow your food, um, something that most of us in this generation, I'm I'm relatively young still, I'm 41, but I have no concept of it now. I talked to my mother. She was raised on the farm. My grandfather remembers being a sharecropper, you know, for tobacco and corn and things like that, but... Uh, my goodness, so far removed uh, that that's a shame. Mm-hmm. That's almost like yeah. taking a domestic animal and releasing it into the wild. They can't fend for themselves if they have to. Well, I'm a little concerned uh, uh, concerned uh, vis-a-vis the average American and, say, the average uh, German from World War II, or let's even talk about Russians right now. Yes. Uh, the, they, they still seem to have more basic... Uh, gardening and survival and scrounging skills to find uh, food uh, out in the wild. Now, uh, you wouldn't survive in the wild on wild game entirely and on uh, 
on uh, a thing of uh, berries and uh, nuts and so forth that you found in the woods, but they sure would be a supplement to your diet. You know, um, yeah. I have been very keen on survival maybe for about 20 years. I, I have known that uh, the economic collapse was coming. It's, it was inevitable. And I asked myself, what would I do in that time? And, you know, of course, I worked with, you know, limited resources. I wanted to, you know, have land and so forth. It just never worked out. But I did do other preparations to include, you know, food storage. And I would talk to people, Ragnar, and I said, you know, what are you going to do when you wake up and uh, the bottom has dropped out? Uh, and many people say, oh, I'll just go shoot a deer. And that's about the only preparation they have in mind. But the truth of it is, if that's all they've got planned, they'll probably starve to death, wouldn't they? I would think so. The basic rule of survival is that you can't expend more energy in the process of uh, uh, gaining whatever the food or their energy or whatever than you uh, recover in the process. In other words, uh, sport hunting is not an alternative in a survival situation. Because you'll end up, again, you want to lose weight. You burn more calories than you take in, right? That's exactly right. That's it. That's the bottom line. You will die, folks, if... (laughs) If you spend more money to catch the food than the uh, calories it's going to give you once you eat it. Uh, And another thing to keep in mind, too, Bruce, is the difference between the Chinese and the Indians. It hasn't happened lately, but the Indians traditionally uh, starved, and the Chinese uh, prospered fairly well as long as the government left them alone. The difference was different bodies of uh, Indians, some wouldn't eat cows, some wouldn't eat pigs, uh, uh, some wouldn't eat this and that, whereas the, for the Chinese, even everything, uh, pigeons, rats, bird nests, everything, they convinced themselves it was a delicacy and just went ahead and ate it and got the calories out of it. So that's a part of uh, the uh, realignment of your thinking that you have to uh, undergo uh, in terms of uh, making it in a survival situation. You've got to eat what's out there. If it's rats and cats and dogs, you better uh, learn to like them. Well, you know, uh, if today you have a lot of these uh, reality TV shows. Two that I particularly like, there's one uh, called Man vs. Wild with this ex-SAS soldier called uh, Bear Grylls. And then you've got an American, uh, actually Canadian, uh, his name is uh, uh, Survivor Man. And those are very popular series, and a lot of people like them because, you know, they would uh, teach you how to survive if you were... Uh, you know, out in the wild somewhere. They go around to different locales around the world. But I think maybe a lot of it was curiosity, too, it's because it's something a lot of people haven't thought about or wouldn't know what to do if they were in that situation because it's so far removed from them living in the city, you know, working 9 to 5. But it's been my belief for a long time that uh, normal lifestyle is coming to a, an end soon, and what are you going to do when that day comes? Uh, you actually learn how to live off the grid. What, what does it mean to live off the grid? Well, that means that they don't have any uh, power line from the uh, power company to your uh, to your uh, retreat or your uh, whatever you want to call it, your uh, home, your place where you're going to stay if, uh, uh, if there's a collapse. And uh, I do that uh, uh, probably unconventionally, um, Bruce, but every uh, survival is an intensely personal process. And uh, survival is also could be called preparedness, of course, and uh, that's intensely personal. And what works for me might, might not work for you. But what I uh, intend to do, because I have uh, five freezers that, where we keep food in, and uh, the food that we uh, uh, 
get hunting or uh, and shooting and raised in the garden and so forth, I intend to uh, use uh, uh, generators to generate power for the freezer for a while. Okay, so so you can keep the uh, the meat um... keep, the, keep the food, yeah, keep it from spoiling. It's from spoiling. And then, uh, let me ask you a question, Bruce. Uh, yes, sir. Along the same subject, when you uh, said you decided to lay back food, what did you uh, what did you decide to store? Well, I tell you what, I was doing. I was uh, you know, working full-time in the city, and I had to live in the city limits, so I was limited to maybe garage storage space. So I decided, you know, um, to me, I needed uh, a means uh, to have clean water, so I invested in some water filtration. And then for food, I was looking for stuff that I could, you know, store many years. And then I, I began to look at it uh, and say, you know, what's going to last? Well, I ended up uh, going with um, long-term uh, greens like uh, long brown rice, uh, white rice. I put in uh, beans of different varieties, um, lots of rice and beans. <laughs> and what I would do is I'd put them in five-gallon buckets, and uh, most most of it I, I hand-packed myself. And then I uh, I went after uh, high-quality protein. And the problem with meat is most of us get it frozen. So what are you left with? So I invested in uh, canned tuna, and then I. Uh, as I had a little bit more money, I started to uh, go from canned goods into, I guess I call it the Cadillac of long-term foods, like the uh, Alpine Air, you know, the freeze-dried rations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd had a friend who was, had, had gotten a source of some long-range warp rations, so I, I got a few of those. Found out things like you can get Yoder's ground beef in the last five years in a can, you know, uh, supplement it with some MREs, but uh, and even some canned goods, but... That was about the extent of it. I figured if I could eat rice, beans, and some tuna every day, I would be okay. <laughs> you would. Now, the, the reason I asked that question, Bruce, is so many people uh, think, well, I'm going to lay back food so I have a couple years' supply. And then they get to immediately look at uh, freeze-dried. And then, uh, and, then, and then that's a turnoff because it's so expensive. It's good. It is. tasty, and it's variable. But uh, that's a that's an error. If you're in a survival situation, you want your food to. And this is an important philosophical concept. You want your food to be fairly mundane, so that uh, uh, you don't out of boredom you don't just start eating and you eat it all away ahead of time. In other okay. words, it, it should be a little problem to. Uh, oh, you're going to face uh, your beans and rice again today. I sure wish I had something better, but that's all I have, and I'm hungry, so I'm going to eat it. So, in other words, am I making myself clear? Oh, yes, sir. It's like the bag of chips that I bite. Uh, they, they taste so good that I usually can't stop at one. I'll eat the whole bag. But yeah, you, that won't be the case with rice and beans. <laughs> yeah. Now, what I suggest people uh, buy is uh, dried peas and lentils because they're extremely high in protein. They're extremely inexpensive. And uh, they're uh, uh, being middle European myself, uh, I find them extremely tasty, but I still not to the point that I sit down and eat them all away. You know, just just eat, 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 and have them all gone pretty quick. But uh, uh, lentils can be purchased for thirty-five cents a pound, and a pound will uh, generally last a person a day. Yes, sir. And uh, and uh, uh, split peas and whole peas, same thing. Reconstitute them with water, and and uh, you can fry them, and. and there are many, many things to do with them. Make a, a gruel and a mush out of them. 
Now, let me ask you a question. Uh, and, folks, I'm sorry. Uh, I didn't give you out the contact number tonight. Usually I hog the guest. I promised I wouldn't do that with Ragnar. Uh, his number is, excuse me, the number to dial on tonight is 917-889-2745. Or if you have a question for Ragnar, the toll-free is 877-806-2482. I apologize for interrupting you, Ragnar. Um, we've no got people listening that uh, maybe this is the first time they've ever given the idea of preparation or a serious consideration, and they're doing it because they see the events in the world escalating. And they've heard the warning for so long, they say, well, maybe there's some truth to it. I better get busy. I guess better late than ever, but uh, you gave the advice of lentils and peas. Where would you um, go to look for them, and then how do you store them once you get them so that they well, don't uh, they usually, perish? I buy them in 25-pound paper bags, and then I uh, put the 25-pound paper bags inside of a plastic garbage can. Okay. And then I uh, take a, uh, some uh, self-tapping uh, wood screws or metal screws and, uh, and screw the lid onto the trash can. And I've got uh, some uh, peas and lentils that are still in perfectly good shape that been, have been stored for 20 years. Oh, my goodness. Um, you didn't have to go through the, the nitrogen pack process and buy all those Mylar bags and things like that? No, you don't. If you buy them commercially, uh, Bruce, because they've cleaned them, they've taken the grasshoppers and the bees' wings and so forth out of them. Okay. And the the uh, and so the same. I don't store uh, wheat for that same reason, because I can get wheat from farmers, but uh, it, it generally has got bees' knees and uh, uh, weed seeds and that sort of thing in it, which just makes it unpalatable. I so tell you what, I, I did one time. I bought some 25-pound bags of corn. I think it was corn, and uh, I got lazy and didn't put it into some, you know, five-gallon buckets, mm-hmm. or in your case, the uh, the trash cans. Um, and after a while, I went down to my basement one day and I heard it moving, and I heard a noise, and I think uh, the weevils were getting in there. Uh, do you have to throw it out at that point, or could you eat the weevils if you had to? If you had to, you could eat the weevils. That was common, and. The various navies around the world, and the uh, up until say about 1850 or so, where they uh, they could just con- just ate them. They considered them the extra protein and not a bit uh, objectionable. And I think of the English navy and the, and the French navy and the Spanish navy for sure, uh, and the Portuguese navy. They folks ate them. Now what? W- okay, so you got- could have eaten it. It wouldn't have been. Um, uh, um, Particularly aesthetic, but it uh, you could have eaten it. <laughs> now, but what do you do for uh, like? Uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. That's a cautionary uh, thing, though, uh, Bruce. Is that if you fire and buy farm-run uh, commodities like corn, wheat, oats, something like that, it's going to have too many uh, uh, bugs and things in it. You need to get to the commercial product that's put up in bags, that's been uh, properly cleaned, and so forth. Pay another ten cents a pound for it, but not really, because all of that uh, chaff and uh, deatrus is taken out of it, and uh, so it, it, there's actually less weight there. Okay. Now the next question comes from our uh, chat room here. We have a live chat room. They said, "Okay, so I have stored maybe my rice and my beans and my lentils, uh, but I have a power outage. Uh, what do you do in that case? You've got the well, dry uh, good." Yeah. Well, all survival requires, uh, you look at what's essential for survival, and it isn't much. It's uh, food, shelter, energy, and water. 
And uh, you need to have every one of those uh, where it's extremely important that without it you die, you must have three separate and distinct uh, uh, sources. Now, I would say one of those sources should be renewable. I think, for instance, we have a lot of stored energy here in terms of uh, uh, heating oil, that sort of thing. But uh, uh, my renewable uh, energy is uh, firewood. And uh, if the power goes off, why, why that's and it did here up on the mountain uh, in, in uh, about two weeks ago. And so we simply built a fire in the fireplace, got out our fry pan, and, and fixed dinner. Oh my goodness, that's awesome. So you'll, you have a, a couple backup systems. You'll have heating oil, but then when that goes out, you can always uh, switch and go to, to wood, which is what uh, all the old-timers used to use anyway, right? Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. You know, before we had yeah. electricity, you had oil lanterns, kerosene. Now, uh, is there a safe way to store fuel? Do you recommend kerosene over gasoline or what? Well, I, I like the fuel oils. Uh, kerosene in 55-gallon barrel is okay, but it's expensive. I think much better to get number two fuel oil and store it. And uh, I usually store 1,000 gallons of it. A lot and, of people uh, say, uh, well, you know, I think I'll just go get me a Coleman generator, but how practical is a gasoline generator? I think impractical. My two generators are uh, both diesel. But then that, uh, it, I have a very, very good friend the other side of the mountain who just bought uh, a generator, and he got one that runs on LP gas. Now, again, survival is a personal matter, and you must evaluate all the circumstances and situations for yourself. And uh, other than uh, listen to me, listening to me regarding you better do something, uh, what specifically you do is up to you, whatever seems best. Well, and I appreciate that. and It depends on your, your location and so forth, but you're still going to have these essential folks. Now, I remember when I lived in uh, Tijuana, Mexico, you go over there, everybody uses these big, you know, uh, I guess they're 50-gallon propane canisters. You know, mm-hmm. it's hooked up to your stove, uh, hooked up to your hot water heater. And we would have a power outage over there. And I said, wait a minute, I guess I'm screwed. Then I realized, wait a minute, I've got the propane. So I was able to take yeah. a bath and cook. We just had uh-huh. to use candles. But, you know, as long as I had hot water for a shower, I was happy. <laughs> yeah. And, you know... And um, then, yeah. That propane uh, tank would last me about uh, two months before I'd have to uh, refill it, so it really lasted a long time. So I got a couple of them, and I knew I had a a system to survive a while with no electricity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, the, uh, another thing that's very, very important folks don't think of is that preparedness and survival uh, requires lots and lots of work. And in many places in the U.S., you don't have enough hours of daylight. Uh, to uh, perform all of the work and chores that are required. So you must think about some uh, artificial lighting so that you could in the evening be uh, uh, snapping beans, peeling squash, or doing whatever, putting up food, butchering a deer, butchering a goat, a sheep, whatever it might be, rabbits. What's your top choice uh, for, uh, for lighting? I'm sorry, Bruce? With, with, let's say there's no electricity, uh, or you're not living in the desert where you could have a solar power generator. Uh, what's your top choice for uh, backup light? Um, I like uh, propane as a backup. The uh, one propane uh, lantern will uh, light a considerable area. And uh, in addition to the oil, I try and keep a, a real, a generous supply, a two-year supply of propane on hand. 
Hey, that's a good that's a good plan right there. Um, let's not uh, forget about water. Uh, a lot of people say, well, you know, uh, I guess my number one priority is water. I can only live three days without it. Um, yeah. What can a person do living in an urban situation uh, to have some water on hand? What's the best way to store it and treat it? Okay, the uh, the thing that I saw in uh, in uh, Berlin and uh, let's see, where else? Uh, Boy, it escapes me right now. But anyway, uh, one of the uh, the things that they do is uh, to catch rainwater and put it into uh, something that substitutes for a cistern. Or you can go down to uh, a local ponds or whatever, but then that water has to be purified. And uh, you can build uh, one, one of the easy, not easy, that's uh, too strong a word, one of the effective ways of uh, uh, purifying water is to run it through a sand filter and just melt, build a two-by-six frame and fill it with uh, uh, sand with a screen on the bottom and pour the water through it and catch it again in a bucket and then treat the water with uh, a couple of ounces of uh, chlorine bleach. It doesn't taste very good, but it'll, uh, it'll, it'll keep you alive. Okay, I like that uh, solution. In fact, I had tried that one time. I got one of these uh, food-grade 55-gallon barrels, filled it up, and put a little bit of bleach in there. Um, you know, if you've got some extra extra water, you can survive, folks. And hopefully yeah. the water comes back on, you know. But if you're without water, you're not going to last long. Have you been down the road uh, and you got caught in traffic and you didn't have so much as a water bottle in your car? <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, what about... Unless Unless there's a spring or a stream or something close at hand that yes. you can get some water out of. Now, uh, when you're drinking water out of um, something like that, a stream or creek, do you have to watch out for uh, Jardia? Yeah. So no you probably want to have something like a Catadine water filter, or what do you what do you recommend? Well, I usually, uh, what we do for water here is we have a well, we can catch uh, rainwater and snow water, and okay. we have a pond. Now, if you're living in the city, it's a uh, kind of a tough deal. There, I, I have seen people uh, put in uh, 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 shallow wells in their front lawn in uh, uh, suburban areas with a pump on them, and then be able to pump water from say 20 feet or so. And I've seen that work, especially in the south. But uh, it's a, it's a tough deal if you're living in uh, the city. Now, Regna, you were raised on the farm, and uh, so you were uh, you were pretty busy uh, as a young man. Uh, but that wasn't all that you were doing. Uh, at one time, uh, you wanted to be able to defend yourself, and you found a unique solution for that. Tell us about that. Okay. Well, I think what you're referring to is when I was 14 years old. Yes. I wanted to get a uh, a, a pistol uh, to carry on the trap line because the rifle was too cumbersome and the basic pack was almost 80 pounds, and that was just a tough slog to carry that from one end of the trap line to the other. And uh, so I kind of looked around a bit what was the uh, best alternative. And in the Indiana, and a 14-year-old couldn't purchase a pistol. And But unless you had an Indiana dealer's license, which there was no age limit on. And how one got an Indiana dealer's license was get a federal firearms permit. And so at age 14, I sent a dollar off to the feds and got an FFL, which I've had ever since. 
listen, uh, I thought I was young. I, I got one at 21, and that was the age. But, man, you got in there, or you got in the grandfather clause, and you've literally had I one so. uh, probably longer than anybody in America. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 58 years I've had one. Man, that's that's pretty wild. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah. Well, that was a pretty cool way. Um, so... You were born and you were, uh, were you um, you were you were raised here in America, up on the farm. Um, mm -hmm. What what came next for you? Uh, you decided you wanted to travel I, well, at some I, point. Uh, my folks uh, were very international in outlook and so forth, and I, th I think one of the first uh, big travel projects I did was went down with my father to uh, Cuba, where he had a printing factory. They printed wow. uh, Christmas cards down there. Really? And I enjoyed Cuba so much, I stayed there until Castro took over. Oh, my goodness. And then I decided maybe I better come home. Now, let me and ask you a question. Next... You you were there yeah. um, uh, pre-Bay of Pigs? You remember the... Uh... Oh, yeah. Oh, certainly. Yeah, I was there when uh, uh, when Castro took over. Uh, let's see. It was uh, 1959, uh, January 1, 1959. That used to be like the Las Vegas uh of the yeah, United States. Uh, you'd hop on a, a boat and go over from Miami, be there, what, 90 minutes? Yeah. You know, no, it was overnight, actually, the uh, the vessel was. The ferry boat that took the cars, anyway. The one that I rode, uh, it got there. Uh, yeah, the, the, it was an overnight passage for the what was miles. What was Savannah like back then before uh, Fidel took over? Well, I thought that they had a very vibrant... Uh, uh, middle class developing and so forth, and the middle class tended uh, to support Fidel, but uh, ba uh, Batista was no uh, charming individual either. So uh, I can both understand them not liking Batista and uh, and maybe not uh, not understanding Fidel. That was sure my case because I, I was actively participated in the revolution, and I, I guess at that age I just didn't think about it. Wow. Of course, uh, to, today it's a uh, difference between day and night, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I have been was back in, uh, let's see, 94, 97. I uh, went back to kind of look around and see what uh, Cuba was like as uh, compared to when I was there. Now, is it true they're still using um, vehicles from the 50s and they just keep refurbishing oh, the yeah. parts? Oh, yeah, for sure. And a lot of bicycles and a lot of horse-drawn vehicles. And uh, they even had, uh, I'm not sure they use them. It's, see, it's, what, if I was there in 97, so that's 13 years ago, so things could uh, could have still changed a bit. But at that time, they had a bus-like uh, business that they dragged behind farm tractors up and down the road, and that's how they transported people. Wow. Now, what was it like being an American there after uh, Castro took over? Did you feel at some point in time uh, you might be persona yeah. non grata, might have to get out? <laughs> Well, my contact with uh, Castro uh, was a uh, Armando was his name. That's all I, the only name I know for him, and he was caught by the Batistas and killed. And oh that was right at the time that Castro took over. And so I just uh, uh, boogied down to the ferry and checked through passport control and all such as it was back then, and. Uh, and waited in the terminal about four hours until the ferry got there, and then uh, took off for Miami. Wow! So I I just got, I got out of there. I don't know if they were 
were looking for me or not, but they must have known that Armando was my close personal friend. Wow, you got up they, by the skin being, teeth. Uh, yeah, they being the... Uh, well, I don't know if the Fidelites uh, would have uh, would have been upset with me at that time because they sure supported the revolution. Sure. Absolutely. So, uh, Batista was overthrown. Uh, Fidel was there. Now, did you did you see any of the uh, the American invasion force sent by the oh, CIA? No, down? no, no. See, that was many years later. Okay. That was many many years later. I've been to the Bay of Pigs. I uh, was there in '94 uh, and '97 as well. And I've been to Venalius where the missile crisis started, and so forth. But uh, but that's well after the fact. My goodness! No, wow. My uh, my uh, uh, and let's see. Uh, my uh, interface with the uh, uh, guns of the revolution and so forth involved walking up and down the beach at Veradero, and uh, and watching for the yachts which were coming in from I don't know where, unloading uh, large wooden uh, crates with I'm not sure what was in them. And whenever the beach patrol came around the corner at the point at Veradero Beach, I would uh, shine my mirror and all of the uh, yachts would uh, disappear out in the ocean again. Wow. <laughs> Man. Now, did you ever run into Che Guevara over there? No. No, I might have met Raul. I can't be sure. That's a long time ago. And uh, things, events were moving very, very quickly and uh, this and that and so forth. So I can never be absolutely sure about that, but I think I did meet Raul at one point. Okay, that's that's uh, Fidel's brother, Raul Castro. Yeah, you know, uh, a question for you, Bruce. Yes, when sir. When I w- lived and worked in uh, Cuba, uh, the conventional wisdom was that Raul was uh, Fidel's half brother. That has never never come out in the current media and so forth. What do you remember about that? Well, you know what? Uh, all I know is. Uh, the very little that I've gleaned uh, extracurricularly, you know, we didn't learn about any of this in high school. You know, I graduated high school back in 87. I was like 17. You know, again, I'm 41 now. And uh, they wouldn't even go into Vietnam. They said, oh, it's it's too recent for us to talk about. I mean, you know, I, I, I hate to admit that I had an American uh, education. Uh, we went as far as uh, Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> And I would get angry. I said, I don't want to hear about that. I want to know about NAM. You know? Well, let's take the. Uh, I have uh, no idea. Bruce, Bruce, there's bound to be somebody listening uh, who would know the answer to that. And that's my dilemma. I don't know if he's a half brother or not. All I know is that at the time I was lived and worked in Cuba, we thought he was. So. Uh, I was on the assumption. Somebody would call in and set, us, set me straight on that. I appreciate the information. Absolutely. Of course, uh, uh, I, I read a lot, and uh, up until I uh, became enamored with the computer, and then I went the way of most of the mainstream today, you know, computer and you forsake the book, which is a shame because there's so much knowledge in the books, uh, and I, I love books. In fact, uh, you know, I'd love to own a library. You know, I go to these bookstores, I want to buy them all, but, uh, you know, I just uh, I love information. Even if I don't read it immediately, I know I've got it there in my hand if I need it. <laughs> Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's back, right. It's a reference. Uh-huh. Exactly. Back uh-huh. to the story. Uh, so you started to travel, and uh, from there, uh, did you come back to America, or did you continue to travel across the world? No, no. I came back to America, and uh, then uh, eventually went and uh, farmed for ten years, 
on my own, and then I moved to Africa for a year. Africa, really? Yeah, and at that time I uh, spent a good deal of time with the Rhodesian police. Wow. And uh, and then uh, then we came back to America. I had my kids with at the time, and I, it just chapped me that they had to wear a uniform to go to school. Now, that is not logical. I know any number of... Uh, of uh, listeners will call up and say, Ragnar, that is just uh, uh, completely foolish. But at the time, I just really objected to it. And so we just came back to the States. Oh, my goodness. Um, now, speaking of Africa, I've been as far as South Africa up to the border of Namibia, and that was about it. I want to go uh-huh. back uh, and visit. My, my father is a young man, actually lived in Libya in um, pre Momar Gaddafi days. And that's another story for another program. But uh, I've always wanted to explore some more. But uh, I was a big fan of Soldier and Forger mag- magazine. I love all these movies like uh, Dogs of War and uh, The Wild Geese. But you mentioned uh, Rhodesia. You were an actually a mercenary at one time? I wouldn't say actually a mercenary. What I did is uh, dealt guns and ammunition there. Wow. So uh, the, uh, depends how you call it, uh, uh, Bruce. You, you could... Uh, Say I was a mercenary, but uh, that was my involvement with the uh, uh, with the uh, uh, Rhodesian police, supplying um, ammunition for them. Interesting. And that's a, that's a thriving market um, even well, today. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, oh, yeah. we can't get the good stuff over here because they you know they banned it pre you know uh-huh. w- with Reagan. Uh, so we've got. Uh, we we basically get stuff that uh, Eastern European bought, and you, you put it together, you know, and and uh, you know, in accordance with the rules to get it in, and you know, you've got um, a thumbhole stock instead of you know a, a folding stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like the uh, I like the uh, the AK forty seven style, but unfortunately, the closest I can get to it is like an SLR ninety five, you know, a Bulgarian model. Uh, and uh-huh. you're, you're lucky if you can find a milled receiver. Most of it's stamped. You know what I mean? But yeah. um, a lot of cool stuff over there. Well, we could talk uh, a shop talk all the about time. Guns all evening. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, when uh-huh. I was uh, when a young man, my father did two things. He loved to go to movies and uh, loved hunting and guns. So naturally, it kind of was in my blood. I, I enjoyed uh, you know hunting sports and uh, and movies. Still do to, to today. But uh, you know, I'm I'm proud of our Second Amendment rights here. Uh, but uh, you got to see some of Africa, and uh, that wasn't the only place. You've been to 90 countries. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, yeah I've lived and worked in uh, for between three and a half weeks and three and a half years in 90 different countries. Amazing. Now, I promised we were going to take a, a, a break, folks. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to uh, like a three or four-minute break, and then we're going to be back with uh, Ragnar. And I want to talk about... Uh, your career as a uh, book author, because how many books have you got under your belt right now? Forty-six. Forty-six, man. I'm still working on my first. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough way at uh, making a living, I'll tell you. I want to talk about that, how you got started and, uh, and you know, and uh, some of your recent trips. Uh, and we'll be back with uh, Ragnar Benson. If you'd like to call in tonight, uh, the phone number is 917 889 Four or five, and we'll be back in a few moments. Okay, three minutes, you think? Uh, Absolutely. Time to okay. get a refill on your coffee, folks. Hit a bathroom. We'll be back. All right, here we go. And you're listening to Omega Man Radio. Uh, special guest tonight, uh, Ragnar Benson. His books are available over at Amazon.com. 
and also paladinpress.com. Very unique books, and uh, I would um, tell you if you would like to uh, call in tonight, uh, do so. I will open up the line, toll-free 877-806-2482, and we'll be back uh, in just a few moments.
And we're back. Uh, you're listening to the Omega Man Radio Network. This is a live program, and our special guest tonight is Ragnar Bitson. I call him the granddaddy of survivalism because he has been around. He has been there. He's done that. Over 46 books, published books to his credit. Probably the, uh, the oldest FFL dealer in America since age 14. That's pretty cool. And uh, he has been to 90 countries between three and a half weeks and three and a half year period. Man, he has traveled. He's got some stamps on that passport. Uh, I know that. I did a lot of traveling. I had so many, I had to actually have them stitch an extra <laughs> in the same minute. Let's get Ragnar back online. Hey, Ragnar. Hi there. Hi. Yeah, that's right. Uh, one of the first things we always do when we get a new passport is go and get the extra pages. <laughs> the, the little wimpy passport they customarily issue doesn't last very long. Now, that is the truth. And uh, I tell you, uh, it comes in handy. Um, otherwise, you sit there and, you know, they're trying to find spaces and, you know, it's just a pain in the butt. At any rate. Um, or you send it off for a visa and then they, they don't have a space for the visa. Isn't that the truth? And, you know, I did that just traveling to, through Central America. I've, I've been to Israel, been to Africa. Uh, that's about it. Now, you've been to 90 countries. Uh, now, you spend at least half the year overseas. Um, mm-hmm. You really have a wanderlust there, and I don't blame you because there's so many beautiful parts of the world to see. Uh, you recently got back on a really cool trip. You were telling me you took a trip to Russia? Uh-huh. I did, yes. I wanted Man, what was to do that, that like? because my folks were uh, of Russian background and left Russia during uh, the time of the Summer Revolution of 1905. That would have been my... Uh, uh, my uh, grandparents' uh, parents. Really? On my mother's side. Oh, man. Uh, that was during the overthrow of the, uh, the Tsar? Uh, they tried. The, the revolution was not successful. It's, uh, it actually started in the uh, Black Sea area and, uh, and spread a bit. And the Tsar, uh, Nicholas III, as I remember, uh, was uh, very reticent about making any uh, accommodations to the folks, but it, it, it started over the fact that they were serving spoiled meat to uh, the sailors on one of the vessels in the Black Sea. But anyway, Amazing. that's a complete aside, uh, Bruce, and I'm sure there's very few uh, listeners that are going to be particularly interested in that. <laughs> but, uh, but I wanted to go to Russia to, to see, see for myself. I, so much of what we uh, hear uh, about in, uh, and see on TV is absolutely untrue. So I wanted to go to Russia and see for myself what it was like. Wow. Now, uh, I have my own um, you know, preconceived notions of what Russia might, might be like just based on what I see um, it portrayed as on television. But uh, a lot of people have a, uh, a, uh, a, a yeah. contorted view of it. What did you actually see in Russia? What is going on over there right now? Okay, here is my take on it. Having spent a great deal of time in eastern Germany and Poland and the Baltics, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, and Hungary, and uh, Czech Republic and the Slovakian Republic, quite a, quite a cross-section right there, I was uh, you, uh, expected to see uh, uh, lots and lots of uh, 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 drunk people out on the street, a lot of bars, a lot of girly bars, a lot of hookers out on the street and so forth. And I can tell you, Bruce, None of that, absolutely none of that, in uh, any of the cities. And we were in quite a few uh, different cities in Russia. 
uh, including Moscow and uh, and St. Petersburg and a number of small villages and towns in between. Uh, none of that at all. Yeah, the uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg are the two of the cleanest cities that I know of in the world. They are also have the most monumental traffic jams of any cities that I know of in the world. They rival even uh, Bangkok, Thailand, in terms of just this, and uh, and Hanoi, uh, uh, Vietnam, in terms of just uh, being completely snarly and awful, and uh, huge numbers of large Mercedes, Audis, VWs, and uh, expensive Nissans and that sort of thing, Fords, even a few, uh, running up and down the streets there, but a very clean cities. And the freeways are built on three levels, much like uh, they are they are in California. And there's a lot of modern freeways. That's that uh, is very evident. And uh, lots of things in the stores. The uh, it did not see the dingy, terrible, uh, drab buildings like are so common to Poland, for instance, and to Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia. It did not see those. And that might be in part because the Russians are running such massive refurbishing programs. Seems like uh, uh, one building in 20 in the large cities is under refurbishment right now. So they're actually pretty affluent. And uh, what I had gleaned on my own was that uh, Russia, India, and China are buying massive amounts of gold and silver. And uh, they're actually propping up the ruble with a lot of gold backing it up. It's a very strong currency, isn't it? Well, I don't know. It's 30 to 1 to the dollar, and it isn't improving a whole bunch. But then Russia does mine a lot of gold, so they might be holding that in reserve. And we do know from uh, even the Wall Street Journal the last few days had articles concerning the fact that Chinese are now uh, uh, hoarding gold. Yes, they are. And, of course, Russia has uh, control of the oil over there, right? So they could pretty much turn the lights off. I think that's where the money is coming from. Mm -hmm. Yes, wow. Well-dressed so, people on the streets, and uh, and if you want to see drunks in a lot of bars and a lot of girly bars and hookers, you must go to Poland, and uh, you can see that there, but not in Russia itself that I saw. Now, you hear about a lot about the Russian mob uh, and so forth. Was that a, a danger at any time when you traveled over there? Uh, I, You know, I think it's evident there. I think that it's an undercurrent to continually uh, the uh, the guides that we dealt with now, a, a couple of things, uh, Bruce, to start, um, I'm going to answer your question, but the, uh, let's start with the fact that uh, we're conversant and fairly conversant in German and Spanish and, uh, and Hebrew, and, uh, but not Russian, and, of course, English. And uh, there's, none of those languages did a nickel's worth of good in Russia. Uh, you speak Russian, and, and that's it. So other than what we heard filtered through guides, why, that's about the best we could do. And But the guides continually talked about a lack of rules and regulations, which precluded uh, business development and that sort of thing. Amazing. So maybe now, that's coming. I don't know. Okay, so now as an American going to Russia, did you get harassed at all or questioned, no. uh, why are you here? Uh, no, were they none at all. Were they open arms? Not, yeah, no, they were very nice to us. They were very, very nice, uh, and all uh, in many regards. Every place, in small villages, small rural villages, and and in big cities and so forth. And we uh, we stopped to inquire of a policeman occasionally, 
and we heard that uh, they would try and shake you down, and uh, they had none of that occurring. And so, uh, uh, no, I didn't I didn't feel threatened at all, although I was prepared to be. Yeah, most of the pictures kind of paint as, oh, you go over there, you'll be uh, tracked by the KGB, and you know you'll be under constant surveillance and harassed. And um, really, they've got their mind on more important things. They're trying to build their economy over there, aren't they? I think so. They're trying to make money, and boy, there's a lot of over there. Man, you know, while we're over here dismantling ours, they're uh, they're taking it to the next level over there. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, so yeah. you got to visit quite a few countries. Now let's uh, let me back up. I don't know when this was in the timeline, but you spent some time in Southeast Asia, also, right? Yeah, I spent a good deal of time. That impinges a bit on uh, why I started writing. I was uh, actually commuting, traveling, traveling back and forth between Bangkok, Thailand. And uh, and working there, and then working in the U.S., and that that was a 17-hour flight, which I was taking as many times as three times a month. Wow! And so I yes. decided I would start writing books, and uh, and so I, I during the course of those 17-hour flights, and so that's when I started writing books. Amazing! Now, uh, did you just have a, a desire to uh, put pen to paper, or were you looking at it as maybe an opportunity to create a uh, an additional source of income? Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, I, w- I was interested in the additional source of income, and I had uh, a uh, close personal friend who was also a relative, a uh, married to one of my mother's sisters, Dugan Larson is his name, a full Ojibwe Indian, and he kept uh, talking about we ought to do a book on ancient Indian uh, g- uh, game uh, gathering methods. Amazing, and so yeah. uh, so I wrote the book, and then because survival was uh, very very uh, uh, important at that time, we changed the book to a uh, survival cast to it. And uh, the important thing to remember about Indians is that they couldn't. Ex- uh, I'm talking about American Indians, and my uh, Dugan did refer to himself as being an Indian continually. A very hardworking, a, a good guy. Uh, and he, uh, but he continually pointed out that uh, Indians couldn't expend more energy getting game than uh, they get, uh, garnered from the game itself when they ate it or used it, used the skin or whatever. So the methods that they used to uh, gather game had little to do with uh, hunting and fishing and fair pursuit and that sort of thing. Amazing. Um, for those. I'm familiar with Ragnar Benson. He's written over 40, what, 47 books to date, right? And, uh, 46, yeah. Many books yeah. here. You know, basically, uh, I'm just going through some of the bibliography. Um, Do-it-yourself medicine, uh, basically, the modern survival retreat. Um, you know, how, uh, how, to, you know, how to live off uh, the land, uh, you know, sur- survival techniques here. Uh, this was at a time back in the 70s and 80s, especially when uh, survival was um, very big. A big, yeah, big and thing. it's coming back again, people are realizing. Now, I should mention the most recent book that I uh, wrote, uh, again, in result, as a result of folks asking about it, and that is a, a book uh, titled How to Survive the Coming Plagues. And it's offered uh, by uh, from Venture Publications. It's not a Paladin book. But it uh, is available from uh, Amazon, How to Survive the Coming Plagues. And, uh, and 
uh, I was often asked in terms of, uh, of uh, the uh, plagues and diseases and so forth that I ran into in the third world, how did you avoid getting them so forth, and how do we avoid having the germs and microbes taking, taken over our lives? So if you're interested in that subject, that book is available from Amazon. Uh, I'm very intrigued with the titles. You know, it's about survival, and um, you know, it's very specialized knowledge that you had, and you started putting uh, it to, to print. Uh, when you first started off, uh, did you have a hard time finding um, a publisher? Did you start self-publishing? No, you know what? what did you do? Uh, I contacted Paladin Press, and they were immediately interested. And awesome. so uh, that was, I think, 79 that we got our first book out. And then they had an idea for a couple of more books, uh, one of them with a, a more of an emphasis on survival within the city, and which uh, it intrigues a lot of people, because that's not going to be easy. Survival out in the rural areas, especially rural agricultural areas, is not that, that tough. Here we go, Ragnar's... Urban Survival, A Hard Times Guide to Staying Alive in the City. I like that title. Uh, well, you know, most of us are living in the city. Um, and we're going to be back to, uh, I want to go back to some of the places you visited, but let me ask you a question. You know, here we are in 2010. We've got a apparent missile launch off the coast of California a few weeks ago. Uh, we've got North Korea. It looks like ready to, you know, launch a nuke against South Korea. I mean, all this crap going on around the world. Uh, we're in some hard times. Where are we in the timeline of history? What is, uh, what's the future for us here in America, Ragnar, as you see it? Well, as I see it, uh, having studied uh, uh, Berlin, London, Madrid, uh, Rome, a, uh, a lot of those cities, uh, uh, Nanking would be another one, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, and so forth, the, uh, the humans are tremendously adaptable. And they're going to try very, very hard to maintain their their status quo and maintain their normal kind of life. Now, it may ratchet on down a bit, but I don't uh, think that uh, that it's going to be a, a total collapse. At, uh, even even in situations like uh, Berlin and uh, Dresden and so forth, which were horribly, horribly destroyed during World War II, there was a total collapse and so forth. But uh, humans are adaptable. And, so, Bruce, this may not be what you want to uh, hear, but my experience suggests that they're, they're going to continue to work in their own private sort of way to maintain the status quo, and that things are going to subside rather than collapse, unless we have some open warfare or if the, uh, the North Koreans decide to use a bomb or something. What is your uh, feeling on 911? Was it an inside job? I've looked at the... Oh, Bruce. <laughs> okay. That was... um, um, Throw your curveball uh, there. Yeah, you did. That's okay. Um, I've, around the world, uh, especially on the island of Crete and in Greece itself, I've run into a number of people who say that 911 never occurred and that it was... Uh, it's, it, that's understandable, Bruce. Uh, our uh, Hollywood people are so good at uh, orchestrating and uh, uh, special effects, making movies very, very believable, that uh, that these folks would say this is just a Hollywood production. Now, I, I don't think nine one one was an inside job. Uh, I spent a good deal of time in uh, in a lot of Arab uh, Muslim countries. I should say Muslim rather than Arab. Uh, 
and uh, as to Turkey being one in particular, and uh, Saudi and. Oh, you've been to Saudi Arabia? Oh yeah, I spent yeah. a good deal of time there, putting it in irrigation irrigation systems. Wow, that's going to be an experience because that's uh, that's pretty hard to get in over there. Um, <laughs> yeah, you've got uh, to they see some interesting start places. A tourist industry there, but um, <laughs> we we can <laughs> well, we shall see. But no, T, yeah, did I answer your question on a nine one one? I think that uh, that was. Uh, that was uh, done pretty much the way uh, that we it was explained to us that it was not uh, necessary. It was not an inside job. That was an external uh, uh, bad guys that came and tried to embarrass us. I, I the reason one of the principal reasons I believe that is because they tried to destroy their World Trade Center. Now, from our, most of our us living out in uh, in uh, the heartland of U.S. And wherever else this program is reaching, what has the trade center got to do with us? Why would they pick the trade center? You know, it was a kind of, a, from my standpoint, a stupid target. Well, if they were going to pick the... something, why didn't they pick the Pentagon? Of course, they did try for it, but uh, uh, why uh, uh, exercise the principal portion of their effort at the trade center? Which, because of that, uh, leads me to believe that, uh, that this was uh, pretty well as uh, as advertised. Well, you got to look though at uh, something like the Building Seven. You know, nothing even hit that, and yet that came down as as good as any uh, demolition in you know Las Vegas of an old hotel. Oh, um, I sure did. But to, had, what did you, other than psychological? What did it do? Uh, at, I believe uh, at, personally, yeah. and I've looked at the facts. And, and folks, this isn't a nine one one show. I just wanted to get Ragnar's uh, take on it. I'm always curious to see what people think. Uh, my personal belief was uh, it was a CIA MI6 inside job. Uh, we needed a pretext to um, bring in the Patriot Act, uh, one and two, Homeland Security Bill. You know, 500-page document that no one even read, but it was sitting on the in the wings on a shelf waiting to be passed. They were just looking for the igniter. And uh, to get us over into Afghanistan for two reasons, to reinstate the opium production, which is, you know, a billion-dollar cash crop, and the Taliban had raised it down to the ground. I believe we use that for black budget operations. And also, the Taliban would not let our oil companies push a pipeline to the Caspian Sea. So we take out the Taliban, we've got our drugs back for black budget, and we've got our oil line, so I believe it was drugs and money. And, uh, you know, I, I believe that uh, most likely Osama bin Laden, which was probably a CIA agent, which was named Tim Osman, as Alex Jones brings out, uh, he was probably dead by September 11th. And, you know, what happened? Uh, I find it interesting that nobody went to work of importance that day to the elite. You know, there was no politicians, you know, no executives. It was all mailroom clerks and secretaries. And, you know, they sacrificed those poor people. And, uh, you know, look where we are nine years later. You know, we're still over in, you know, Afghanistan, Iraq. We still haven't found Osama bin Laden. And now, you know, they want us to do a full-body strip-down at the uh, the airports. It, it was just a pretext to, I think, wrestle freedom from America, which is one of the last vestiges of freedom, and uh, and look at, you know, how we've been dismantled over this period of time. So that's my thing. It certainly was the end result, wasn't it? It sure was. It's not a pretty picture. You know, it, it's not the same yeah. uh, uh, America that uh, you grew up in. And, uh, you know, man, how times have changed in a relatively rapid period of time, and you know, if it's happened this fast, uh, you know, where are we going to be five years from now? Um, you know, what's next? 
some of the books you've got, I think, are timely because they they uh, detail, you know, plans for survival in a in a uh, kind of an apocalyptic situation, and mm-hmm. uh, that's what intrigued me with these books. Now, but back to the topic at hand, uh, and folks, if you're just tuning in, we've got uh, Ragnar Benson, prolific author, survivalist, um, jack of all trades. I'll throw in there. You know a lot. You learned uh, on the farm as a young boy, and in your travels. What kept you traveling, Ragnar? Um, why didn't you just go and take a nine-to-five job like most people? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I guess, uh, well, I had some pretty good international contracts um, with uh, various uh, food-producing uh, and agricultural uh, organizations and so forth, and I just found that very interesting. And I think uh, agriculture is kind of the core of the matter, and so I always enjoyed that, and uh, I just... Why do, why do you do anything? Why do you stay with radio uh, programming? You know, you know it, the it, truth. It just, it just happens. Well, now, you know, uh, you had a, a pretty robust base to draw on. You, you knew how to do everything uh, to survive on the, on the farm, catch your food, grow your food. So um, you have kind of a common thread in your travels, agriculture. So let me take you back to Southeast Asia. Uh, you got over there. What were you doing over there? I was uh, working, uh, teaching the farmers to raise potatoes. So that uh, the processing grade American uh, varieties of potatoes, so that we could process them into French fries for the fast food restaurants in Thailand and Amazing. in Southeast Asia. Really? Yeah, not very glamorous, but that's what it was. And you know, it was needed at the time. So uh, you certainly love to travel. Uh, so this, how, how does one out there listening right now say, "Man, I'd love to travel like you did, ninety countries"? Uh, how how do you support yourself? Living overseas, what is your advice to the would-be traveler who'd like to escape the rat race here? Are, are there still jobs well, like the, that available? The, uh, the, the, uh, it, I'm not sure that I could validly comment for you, Bruce, because I'd get to the country and that there would be an in-country client uh, who would uh, then take care of me and and take uh, and we'd go out and visit the farmers and talk to them and arrange for uh, trial plots and so forth to be grown. And uh, and so uh, a lot of the even the living accommodations and so forth were all taken care of by the in-country client. Okay, got and, it. So uh, most of it was set up. The, Phil- uh, in the Philippines, it was San Miguel, the the beer people. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. So you went to Philippines, Thailand. Uh, did you get over to Vietnam? Yes. Amazing. Yeah, now. I've, you got to see uh, Southeast Asia. That's cool. That's a place I haven't been. Now, uh, you've got some interesting books uh, that I wanted to talk about that kind of correspond with being over in Southeast Asia. You've got one about building man traps. Uh, how did that come about? I was uh, principally that started in Africa, where I, I worked in what at the time was called uh, the NFD, Northern Frontier District of Kenya, and uh, they're uh, on Lake Rudolph, and I think it's called Lake Turkana now. This was many years ago, and uh, those uh, those uh, Rendili and Samboro uh, and Turkana tribes people were very skilled at building uh, traps that caught people. And so I started paying attention to uh, how they went about doing this and so forth, and uh, and noticed that there, there I saw a lot of those all over the world. Uh, in uh, Australia is another example of some, and. Uh, the Maoris in uh, in New Zealand uh, built some of them, and uh, in the Philippines, lots and lots of them. 
where they don't use, uh, other than maybe hammers and nails and some rope, they really don't use any modern materials. They're just things that they scrounge out in the uh, wild and uh, build traps to uh, mostly harass people, uh, uh, military patrols, government patrols. Very true up on the Thai-Burmese border in uh, Thailand. Now, being over uh, there, uh, did you get over into Burma? Yes, I've been in Burma. I've not worked there extensively, but I've been there, yeah. And yeah, sometimes, uh, 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 and uh, at a time, then, uh, what would we say, not to speak of, with no visa or anything, just to flip across the border, but I've been into uh, Rangoon legally wow. and properly. Yes, uh, those are some pretty some tough areas over there. Now, uh, yeah. you're doing... Yeah, and King Kong is just another ape. You're doing uh, agricultural jobs over there, so as you're um, developing land out there, did you come against come across any uh, remnants of um, the Vietnam War? I mean, in terms of man traps, uh, bungee pits, and the the tunnels. That, uh... Yeah, uh, I think one of the uh, principal things that I encountered there was uh, a lot of uh, Hmong tribes people that I worked with up in the hill country, where they were raising the opium poppies and so forth in northern Thailand on uh, uh, north of Chiang Mai and Chiang Rai over into my son in, the, uh, in Burma itself. And so I ran into a lot of the monks, and they, uh, they developed a lot of traps. And uh, then I, another thing that was extremely interesting was the, uh, the Thai uh, Border Patrol mercenaries. There was some tough Jose's, tough little guys. They they pack out and go, pack up and go out in the three week mission, which included take for the rations they take live ducks and live chickens. Wow! My goodness, live live ducks and live chickens. Uh, my yeah. goodness. and uh, you know bags of rice and that sort of thing. And and these were uh, little guys, you know, five foot uh, five at the most, covered with tattoos, and. Uh, and you're just tough. That's all you could say. You walk for 30, 40 miles through the mountains and every day and every day. Yeah, those were some robust guys over there. Now, when you were going, yeah. did you get to explore any of the jungles? Did you come across any of the uh, the famed tunnels along the Ho Chi Minh Trail? Yeah, I did. In in Vietnam, I got to see those, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah uh, that'd be kind and of cool. And all I can tell you is that some of them are still there. They might be uh, tourist trap type things, but they, there's, uh, some of them are still there. And when you actually and talk I, I about a, a good hmm? Go ahead, I'm sorry. Okay. I spent a good deal of time up on uh, in uh, Vietnam on uh, the uh, Chinese border in the area where the China tried to invade. I'm going to tell you it's roughly 77, 78, and where the Vietnamese, the tough Vietnamese, just stopped the Chinese army cold. But wow. there, there is very little... Uh, uh, on the ground evidence of of that warfare yet? You know, a lot of those areas were mined, uh, traps, uh, especially in the Vietnam jungle over there. Did they clear it, or is that stuff still probably in place out there? If you walked in the wrong place, you could go down in a bungee pit. The only place that I know where the uh, those traps are are still there in their mines and so forth is in the Falkland Islands and uh, up on the uh, in uh, let's see north. Uh, Eastern Israel and the Golan Heights. Really? You can still see the mines, uh, the signs for the mines there. Amazing. A lot of them still in the Falkland Islands from the uh, 
oh gee, what was it, 19, just 25, 26, 27 years ago, the Falkland Island War with uh, Argentina. Now that one I remember, the Falkland uh, Island invasion over there. Did, did you actually get a chance to go to the Falkland Islands? Yes, I did. Check that out. There's rumor yeah. that uh, that is actually the site of the uh, the uh, the royal bunker for the royal family. Any truth to that? I didn't see it. And I sure did have uh, full uh, reign to go wherever I uh, felt like uh, on the, the Falklands, here and there and so forth, and the other place. Um, and I found everybody to be extremely, extremely friendly and uh, talked. And, of course, they speak English. And we uh, spent a good deal of time talking to people in rural areas and on farms and so forth. And uh, there, again, that was uh, uh, quite a surprise. But now they, that retreat area may be there. I don't know, but I, I didn't see it. Well, it's only I got to be uh, friends with the uh, uh, the governor. Uh, let's see, his name is Huckle, Governor Huckle, and uh, I got to be friends with him. But I didn't ask that uh, question specifically. Yeah, the, he got the governor invited uh, my wife and I to a reception for the queen on the queen's birthday. Of course, she wasn't there, but one of the proud things I got to do was to drink to the Queen's health. Now, I'll bet you, Bruce, that you've never drank to the Queen's health. <laughs> no, sir, not yet. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. I thought that was just outstanding. That's pretty wild. Uh, you've been to a lot of places. Um, what was the uh, What's the coolest place you've been uh, so far or, and you want to go back to? This may surprise you. It's probably a three-way tie. Um, I like uh, northern Germany, I like Thailand, and I like Turkey. And in Germany, it's obvious, because uh, I can get along in German. And in Turkey, it's somewhat obvious, because every other Turk speaks German. And then the Turkey has a whole bunch of really neat history. It's a very developed infrastructure, basically hardworking, honest people. Uh, if you... Uh, to discount the religious conservatives, which are uh, a real factor there, especially in the mosques and so forth, and uh, and a lot of history there, and uh, and then the food in Turkey is just outstanding. I hear the prices are pretty good too. In fact, I talked to some friends in Israel, and they they all go over to Cyprus to buy clothes, and you know go over to mainland Turkey, I guess, and uh, they say you know it's uh, it's really. Uh, Overlooked uh, tourist destination too. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I hear beautiful place yeah. to see and uh-huh. so many um, things to see. That's amazing. Yeah, I love to travel. That's one place I haven't been yet. Uh, I'd like to go over there and see some of the historical sites. Now you've got a uh, lot you of speak books. Spanish, don't you, Bruce? Uh, si yo hablo español. Yeah. Poquito. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed living in Cartagena because over there I didn't have to have a, a good Spanish. All I needed to do was just kind of sling it, you know, vamos a la calle die. <laughs> the thing to remember, too, is that Spanish is different. Argentine Spanish is so totally different than yes, Cuban sir. Spanish, for instance. Now, I can do fairly well with Cuban Spanish, but uh, Argentine Spanish, uh, our, our salvation there was uh, we ran into a number of people who spoke Yiddish, which is uh, in Argentina which is very close to uh, uh, to German, and so we could communicate. Amazing. Um, travel's cool. Uh, you've been to Switzerland before, is that right? 
Yes, I have. Yeah, I understand. Actually, I understand Switzerland uh, really takes care of its citizenry. Is it true that they have big bunkers in the sides of the mountains, and everybody yes. is uh, has a, a contingency plan in the case of a nuclear war? I think that they're uh, that they're dropping that. Unfortunately, Bruce, really. They, uh, they're not as excited about it as they used to be about the university mil- universal military service and so forth. And there, there has been some tightening of their gun laws. Uh, and, of course, the Swiss just complain about that uh, a bunch. And I think that's wise. Uh, you know, we should not be in the uh, mode of, the, uh, for instance, the Jews in Nazi Germany. That said, if we do just this one more thing, they'll leave us alone. Well, they won't leave us alone. Uh, we can't do that one more thing. So when the American gun owners complain about even the tiniest infringement, I think that's important that we should continue to do that infringement on their uh, gun rights. And uh, right now, the, uh, the all over the world, this may be a, uh, a, a source of great co- uh, confidence for you, Bruce. All over the world, the gun owners seem to have woke up and... Uh, there have been many attempts to strengthen the gun laws. I think in New Zealand, I think of in uh, uh, in Brazil, I think of in uh, UK right now, and in Switzerland, and in Finland, just are, are some quick... Germany is another very good example, and they're just stopped dead in the tracks. And the gun awesome. owners have woke up, and they say, no more, we're not going to have any more of this, and uh, they band together in a political sense, and they, they've stopped it. Well, it's about all time. over the world, that's true. Because in some places, I mean, they've already just raped people. Look at uh, Australia. You, what, you can't even own a, a twenty two rifle out there unless you're a farmer. Um, you know, well, you can. You can own a twenty two rifle there. Yeah, you must go through their uh, licensing process and so forth. And, uh, and they do own pistols there as well. You can't hunt with one. But I was just in Australia not too long ago and stopped in several gun shops. Really? Uh, yeah. So, can, so you can yeah, buy you one can for self-defense? Really? Um, well, uh, the, the self-defense is relative. I, I don't know that I, I recall specifically how they handle that. Oh, I do too. Uh, the, you, you can use a gun in self-defense there, but it has to be. Uh, there are going to be some very stringent inquiry into uh, uh, how and why you use that gun. And if it really wasn't strictly self-defense, then you're going to be in trouble. Okay. Uh, we ran into a number of people that were shooting pistols in the pistol uh, clubs and so forth. A number of folks that were shooting uh, 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 shotguns and rifles uh, uh, for target shooting and that sort of thing, and clay pigeons, and a lot of hunting going on in Australia as well. Lots and lots of hunting. Well, that's good to hear. I, the way I kind of perceived it, it, it was all it had all been outlawed over there. They couldn't even own a, a slingshot almost. Um. <laughs> you know that what they did is they uh, they uh, cut out a lot of uh, uh, the assault rifles and so forth that were uh, available in Australia. But what I understand is very few of the farmers actually turned them in. Okay. Well, so good for them. They, they turned in the uh, the low class junk. Okay, that's smart. <laughs> now let's go to another subject. Uh, one I like uh, okay. some of the books you've got. You got one called Acquiring New ID: How to Easily Use Latest Technology to Drop Out. You've got stuff about how to survive in the underground economy. Um, you know, when that's an important book right now, uh, Bruce. Uh, we need to uh, need to emphasize that book at uh, at uh, 
right now. What uh, is the uh, what would be the definition of the underground economy? Where uh, you uh, where you work uh, for yourself without uh, on a cash basis. For instance, you uh, do some plumbing or uh, or uh, repairs to a house or whatever. You do that on a cash basis or trade basis. The person might give you something in trade for it, and that, that it's not reportable income, so you don't pay tax on it. Well, I know Uncle Sam would like to take everything we've got if he had his way. Uh, yeah, you know, just and keep it's us. It's coming his... more and more. Many countries in the world. I think of, for instance, Germany, and I'll bet you right now that thirty percent of their economy is off the books. Really? Yeah. And Italy, I'll bet it's fifty percent. People just are fed up with uh, not even being able to yeah. make ends meet, right? Yep, they can't make ends meet, and so they uh, barter trade or they uh, or work for cash. Amazing. Uh, what are some of the things that uh, a person can do to survive in an, in an underground economy? Is, is it important that they pick up a skill, for example? Well, yeah, if you're uh, a skilled carpenter or a plumber or an electrician, uh, right now I know where you could go to work immediately in northern Germany. And uh, I expect uh, that there's a lot of opportunities in the cities in this country uh, where uh, you just have to get it. It's like any business. You have to get a reputation for doing quality uh, work on time and on budget and so forth. And uh, and, and I, I think, for instance, a fellow called me this evening, wants to work on my vehicles, uh, wants to do the mechanic work. Now, it was un, unspoken, but I'm just sure he's talking about cash. In a cash economy, and then I'm just sure that he's not going to report it. Well, you know, there's an old adage. That wasn't mentioned, but that's, uh, I'm sure that's what he had in mind. Uh, I'm still the old adage, cash is king. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. You know, I uh, went out to buy a, a, some underwear. They said, will you be using your credit card? I said, no, ma'am, cash is king. Um, <laughs> and, you know, of course, the system wants to put everybody into the cashless system. Uh, they want to track every movement that you make. Uh, is it po- still possible to have personal privacy in 2010? Any ways to keep so. uh, to keep a low profile? You know, to to keep your God-given right to, to privacy, as I would put it. I think it. Yeah, I think it's possible. Yeah, I think you're going to have to live uh, rather obscurely in a rural area, uh, and that you can do that. Yeah. Of course, uh, you know. You with the advent of the internet, and now you've got webcams on all the laptops, and uh, you know there's Not reports. On ours. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is it? Uh, do TVs have two-way listening devices? Is it what, Bruce? We have a lot of people saying that uh, they've already infiltrated, uh, you know, modern televisions and the cable boxes and so forth, and uh, that the powers that be are uh, able to eavesdrop into living rooms now with fiber optics and so forth. Any truth to that? I think so. I think uh, I remember as kids, now you've got to realize that, uh, that the, the, uh, as a young man, that uh, this were, these were Russians, that I was uh, Russian grandparents, and they always said, don't uh, gossip or talk about anything important around the telephone because somebody might be listening over the telephone. That the assumption was, even though the thing was hung up, there was a device that could go into the phone that you could hear all the conversations in the room. So I, I kind of think that, uh, that that's true. Yeah, At I know that. I, my assumption is that I always uh, plan for that. 
Absolutely. There, we're certainly in a surveillance society. They're putting cameras up on every uh, street corner, it seems now. Uh, more than just You know sports. what the saving feature that is? Uh, you can't, uh, uh, for every person out there, you have to have somebody watching. And we're going to run out of uh, ability to have watchers. Really? I think. That's what yeah. happens, is that I think, happened in a lot of the really totalitarian societies like Romania and, and uh, Hungary and so forth, where they just ran out of uh, uh, people to do the watching. Amazing. Yeah. Now, I, it, that's my optimistic cut on that. So you travel the world, you, you're in the agricultural trade, uh, all the while you're writing books. Um, any advice to someone who would like to get in and become an author? I guess I would say don't. It's an awful, brutal uh, um, uh, uh, way of making a living, and it's uh, awfully, lots and lots of rejection, and lots and lots of uh, really uh, jerks who are... Uh, are uh, uh, editors and so forth uh, out there and uh, with arbitrary rules and regulations and so forth and the way they do business and so forth it's very difficult to break in and and, and, uh, and make a living at that now when you write uh, with, uh, I've, I've heard that there's only 250 or so people in the US that really make their full-time living writing books and magazine articles and so forth I don't know if that's true but uh, that's what wow. I've heard Oh wow, yeah, that's uh, that's a very hard market to break into. Then, uh, how yeah. do you write? Do you dictate into a tape recorder? Or do you put it on? I, a, I usually a uh, get uh, some large pads of paper and just start writing. I like to see this stuff, and I, I try words. And you use an old and, typewriter, and or do you use word processors, no, or what? I just use a pen and paper. Amazing. In many cases, I'm on an airplane or something, and. That's the way I got started, and that's what I'm comfortable with. Often you, you see my first draft of the writing, and it, you couldn't tell the difference between it and an outline, where I have maybe two, three lines on the, on the pad where I'm trying different words and so forth. Obviously, I'm not tremendously articulate, and, uh, and so what, what I have to do is uh, try different words and so forth and do a little better writing. You think it's important, the, uh, the, the just the sheer... Volume of pages that a person puts in a book, or more of the content. You think uh, it's just more of the content for sure. You have to you have to make it understandable to people that are reading it and believable. Now, Regnar, uh, along the way, you had other professions as well. Were you actually a PI for some time? Yeah, I did work at that for quite a uh, number of years. Yeah. How did you like that business? Uh, I really, uh, I was always conflicted by it because the attorneys that I tended to work for always seemed to be real jerks. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> <laughs> so what else can I say, Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> now you, let me go down the list of books. You've got a number of books that regard the, uh, regarding um, medicine when there's no doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. What, yeah, what is your observations I'm... there? Is there a time coming where a person may need to... Uh, be able to take so, care of you know medical emergencies themselves. I think so. I think that's always true. Back on the farm, that was true. We didn't have the money to for doctors and uh, to hospitals and so forth. So we generally doctored with the uh, vet medical supplies that we had. And a lot of those books uh, zero in on that uh, that uh, device. Absolutely. Yeah. I think the I think it's medical... good. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, the vet medical supplies in many cases are just exactly the same as uh, 
the stuff that the doctor uses at uh, one-tenth the price. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I call it the medical mafia, if you ask me. Um, they, you know, my own grandparents are retired. They're they're actually uh, ministers and missionaries, and uh, it's gotten so bad that uh, they can hardly even afford uh, medicine now. And um, Medicare came in and said, "Well, you know, we can take care of you, but here's what we want in exchange: you're going to need uh, someone to come in like uh, a few hours a week. Uh, we want you to go over and sign over any assets you've got. So when you die, it becomes the property of Medicare. Mm-hmm. You know, they're living in a trailer for goodness sakes." It was like, you know, uh, that, uh, a I mean, quick it, comment. Yes. Uh, I ran into uh, uh, people, let's see, in Thailand, in Malaysia, in Ecuador, in Mexico, who all uh, rail against the fact that we need a prescription for common medical supplies. They say, they say you're not, you don't live in a free country. You have, True. you can't even get at the medical supplies that you need. And, uh, and my response, of course, is Americans have given up personal responsibility, so uh, they can't be trusted to uh, make their own decisions uh, uh, regarding what medical, uh, what medicines and so forth they might need. Or if the doctor suggests something, that uh, that they go and get it from the uh, from the pharmacy. But then we've got to deal with the the uh, the middleman at the pharmacy, the middlewoman, or whatever the case may be. Oh, it's always it's always pissed me off, for lack of a better word. You know, I would go in, and my average doctor visit would be you know three or four minutes, and I had a hundred dollar bill that uh-huh. I had to pay. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking, you know, I and I had to wait several hours just for my turn. Uh, then I got over to Mexico, and uh, you know, if I needed antibiotics, uh, I would go right to the pharmacy. You know, I want a um, hundred milligrams of amoxicillin, or you know, yeah. whatever I needed, uh, I could go yeah. get, and. Um, and the pharmacist it. would say, what are your symptoms? Let me help you uh, see if there's something better for you. Oh, absolutely. And right? by the way, you need a shot. We'll, uh, step over here and $5, we'll give you the injection. Uh, you know, you have yeah. the flu, we'll give you the uh, the B12 injection, whatever they were going to give you. Um, that was at least until America started to put the pressure on it. Now, when I was living in Costa Rica last, I used to could go in and pick up uh, prescriptions, and now um, they're requiring a doctor to sign off on it. And many of the mainstream ones there, because of American pressure, it's crazy. It's just about in Costa control. Rica. Yeah, in Costa you know, Rica. Absolutely. Um, so you know we've uh, we've given away our rights, and uh, we you know we want to be uh, spoon fed everything, and you know, and we look at the Frank, doctors right. as though they are gods, and uh, it's a it's a shame and a travesty that uh, we don't even have that that freedom. Uh, here in America, like you do in some of these other countries. Um, let me talk to you about personal defense items. Uh, there's people out there that say, you know, I believe in the Second Amendment, um, and you've been a gun dealer for many years. Um, if a person could only uh, afford one firearm, what would that be? What do you recommend? Just one firearm? Um, that would be your top pick. I think if you had to just have one, I'd be inclined to get a real reliable bolt-action twenty two rifle. Twenty two rifle. I think so. Interesting. But, uh, I sure have shot a lot of pheasants and a lot of uh, uh, rabbits and raccoons and so forth on the farm, which went into the pot with a twenty-two rifle, and I've killed beefs with a twenty-two rifle. I've killed a number of marauding dogs with a twenty-two. <laughs> so uh, um, that uh, and, uh, and then I've got in a lot of discussions with people 
regarding uh, what would I uh, take for uh, carry for a uh, defense uh, gun, and I think my first uh, choice would be a twenty-two pistol. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you've got to hit things with it. You've got to be able to afford to practice with it. You've got to be able to uh, uh, buy enough ammunition that you could shoot fifty rounds a day for a year or so, so you can get a, uh, get proficient with it. Isn't so, that the uh, truth? Yeah. And so uh, if you can't hit anything with it, then with your pistol, why? what good is it? It can be the biggest gun uh, going, and it still wouldn't do you any good. Well, you're the same guy who told me that. I, I know a guy, Special Forces guy, was in NAM. Uh, actually, uh, he, he was a prisoner of war and escaped. Um, pretty bad situation. I won't go into the whole story tonight, but I said, you know, what do you like? And he says, just give me one of these Ruger, I think it was a Ruger Mark II or three. Yeah. And he uh-huh. said... Uh, uh-huh. I carry all the ammo I need in my pocket, and it's all about a well-placed eye socket shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's right. He's absolutely right. Now, going from there, you might need a shotgun. would be a, a good weapon for self-defense and for hunting. Um, if you were going to do a bit of, or let's put it this way, game shooting rather than hunting. Absolutely. I, I really think if in a survival context, you're going to have to trap the game and not hunt it. But uh, you might have to shoot it in the trap or whatever. Yeah, the one thing is absolutely true, and I had this discussion just uh, just a couple of weeks ago with a fellow who stopped up and wanted to talk about uh, forming a, uh, uh, I'll call it a little private militia. And I, t- uh, and I told him that absolutely is a non-starter. You can't expect family members to engage in military actions. And you can't send your wife and kids out knowing that there's going to be casualties. You will not do that. You can't do it. So uh, my theory is that uh, you should never uh, plan to engage in military-type activity in a survival context. You should plan to be obscure and keep your head down. Absolutely. I think that's that's good advice. Yeah, I can document that from... Numerous cases all over the world, wherever you'd like, uh, Beirut, uh, uh, Vietnam, uh, southern Thailand right now even, uh, Germany, uh, just in just many, many places, um, Israel even. Here's a uh, question from our chat room. It says, I have a okay. question for Ragnar. Ragnar, um what do you recommend in the case of a, uh, a nuclear detonation? Do uh, you have any special uh, equipment that uh, should be in someone's uh, bag that uh, the, could be uh, susceptible to you know, being in an area of um, nuclear fallout well, and so forth? <laughs> I, I do know this. I, I've been in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I know that there, there were people within... Uh, 1,200 feet of ground zero that survived the blast and uh, in Hiroshima. And I also know that there were Japanese soldiers in Hiroshima who survived the blast and were transferred to Nagasaki and got nuked a second time and survived. Wow. Now, so, do you, uh, you have yeah, nuke pills in your personal um, collection? Yeah, you mean, uh, let's see, what, what do they call Potassium them? iodide? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. I do have those. And uh, but I think the uh, principal way you're going to survive uh, nuclear attack is not be in the cities that are under attack. In other words, get out of dodge uh, before yeah, it get is out hit. Of dodge. 
Now, if you're looking for a collapse economy, you're going to have to think of some way to live in a rural agricultural community. Why rural? Why a rural community? Well, nobody's going to want to go there because there's too few people and so forth. And why agricultural? Because there's going to be these big silver bins full of corn, wheat, oats, barley, and so forth that you might need to live on. And that you might be able to barter with farmers uh, uh, to get... Uh, uh, get some of these uh, food items that you need. When you uh, use the term collapse, uh, how, what do you term as that? You mean the collapse economy? Yes, sir. I mean that we're yeah, something similar to the Germany in the nineteen early nineteen twenties, uh, similar to uh, England like, in nineteen forty five to, to nineteen fifty five, where the uh, uh, money is not worth anything, and there's nothing to buy anyway. So even if you had money, uh, the shelves are going to be empty, right? Yeah, that's right. How but if you've got a garden and you can raise some zucchinis and trade for whatever, why, uh, yeah. Now, some people are advocating uh, stocking up on gold and silver. In fact, speaking of which, uh, gold hit like a record high. It was like fourteen, over $1,400 today, and silver is almost at $30. It's going crazy. Are we seeing the dollar crazy. collapse? Yeah. Yeah, that's a. So I sure look at the gold market as being uh, uh, a uh, prophetic in regard to the economy and so forth. And I don't like. I, I think uh, ownership of gold is virtually uh, immoral. Really? Uh, we, yeah. Um, I'll tell you why. Economies like India, where people hold their wealth in gold, are uh, poor. Uh, ineffective economies. What needs to happen morally and ethically is that your money is held in uh, some form or other where it is productively employed. Now, if it's uh, if you have bank deposits, those deposits are loaned out to buy houses or apartments or something, or not to buy, let's say, construct. Or if you own stocks in a, uh, a company, then that that, that uh, funds some machinery to make things, but if you own gold, uh, where is the uh, uh, the uh, infrastructure that's funded from the gold? Well, I agree with you there. Um, I think just people who are getting gold and silver, you know, they're living in a, uh, a you know an urban situation, and they you know they see the day maybe that they'll get up and their ATM card doesn't work, and you know the dollar is. Uh, is collapsing, uh-huh. and you know they don't have faith and trust in a, a Federal Reserve note that has no backing. I really don't blame them. You know, we're not on a, a backing like Russia. I don't Russia's either, Bruce. Yeah. This yeah. is a, an incredible dilemma for me. Uh, I don't blame them at all uh, for that. Uh, that uh, you know, if they, they, gold is an insurance policy, but but it does doesn't add to the economy. You say ask somebody out there calling and tell me how. It adds to the economy where where it will fund a factor of production or a uh, inventory of uh, clothes or tools or uh, lumber, coal or oil or whatever. It doesn't. Well, you can't eat it. It just either, sits there, and uh, your <laughs> only your only hope to make anything on it is to uh, as is a general appreciation. But as long as we have such an immoral. Uh, uh, Grubbling government, um, I guess we have to uh, do what we can to maintain ourselves, and so we'll continue to buy gold. 
you, you hold the uh, the attitude that uh, of like the the book The Good Earth by Pearl Buck. Who was the farmer there? Was his name Wunyana, or was that, was that his wife? I can't remember. It's been a while since I read that. Uh, yeah, it's been a long while for me as well. But, you know, the bottom line there, the thread between behind that story was, you know, if you don't have land, you don't have anything. That's the true wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at least with, if you've got land, you can grow a crop, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can eat something. that. Mm-hmm. So uh, would you still rather have land than gold? Ideally, I think maybe you better have both in this economy. So are you actually holding out some hope that it's uh, going to turn around as, as bleak as it looks with uh, everything being dismantled and uh, sold off well, to overseas companies? Well, I can't think of anything Obama's done that's been conducive to business and production. I can't think of one single thing. But uh, uh, but I think that, uh, uh, as I mentioned way earlier in the previous hour, that... Uh, that Americans and humans in general are tremendously resilient, and they're going to resist this sort of thing uh, with all of their might and try and just to continue to eke out a living and so forth, which may keep us from a collapse. I tell you, we're we're in some uh, dire straits, and folks, we're going to go to a uh, a quick break, and then we're going to be back with the final portion of the show with Ragnar Benson. Uh, so we're going to take a three or four minute break, and uh, we'll be back here. In just a few moments, you're listening okay, to three minute break. Then, okay, Bruce, listening to Omega Man Radio, and we'll be back in about three minutes, folks. Um, if you're interested in Ragnar's books, he has many. You can get them up at uh, Amazon.com, Ragnar Benson, or Paladin Press. And I would recommend you look at uh, his books. Uh, he's been there and done that. He's got a lot of cool how-to books on how to survive. You know how to. Um, how to do some of the things that we haven't learned how to do in uh, in the urban setting where most of us have been born. At least I'll say that for myself. I, I wish I was on a farm and I knew how to do some of that stuff. I, I couldn't grow a crop if if I wanted to, <laughs> but I'd sure like to. I did buy some seeds though at one point in time. So yeah, seeds are important, uh, especially in light of the uh, GMO seeds out there and these Terminator seeds and all this uh, crap that's coming out of Monsanto Corporation. And um, so I think, yeah, heirloom seeds uh, are important. I know some people that are buying those. Uh, They've got a can or two. Uh, The real question, though, is uh, how long will you be able to to grow before, you know, uh, growing is outlawed? I mean, it kind of looks that way. Uh, Some of the legislation that they're pushing through talks about maybe they're going to uh, make it illegal to have gardens. Could it come to that? Uh, I I think that uh, with all the other control infrastructure, They've also got to control the food because basically, you know, if they can starve you out, then what are you going to do? you got no option but to succumb to whatever they want you to agree to. And uh, they'll take your food away and you've got an option, basically. Better be a Christian, believe the Lord for manna, or you're going to be getting into the uh, the FEMA food line. Uh, many times that's a one-way ticket into the camps, like in, you know, Katrina. Take your MREs. Your water, and uh, that's your tent where you're going to live from now. <laughs> I mean, it's coming to that, folks. Uh, we're in a terrible situation. 72 fusion centers here in America. The police state uh, is here. Jesse Ventura broke the story on uh, True TV, and I heard that uh, they've just pulled that. They're not going to be running it again. He got so much backlash. 
So, uh, yeah, I believe that uh, America is being dismantled bit by bit. Our military has been dismantled. Uh, our infrastructure has been dismantled. And, you know, we didn't really cry out. We just said, you know, we want to pay less. You know, give us Walmarts in every corner. And so what do we have? We have Walmarts. We have cheap Chinese goods, um, which most of it craps out uh, within three months of buying it or less. That was my experience, at least. Uh, I do believe the Chinese could do better, but uh, I really don't have to blame them. I blame the uh, the people who are manufacturing it. You know, they want to give us uh, the lowest quality good for the highest price that they can charge us. So they don't uh, maybe order the raw materials um, that are needed to make a higher-spec product. At least that's my thinking. We'll get uh, Ragnar's impression on that. Let's get him back on the line. Ragnar. Benson okay, is on uh, we're going to take a break now, are we, Bruce? Uh, yes, absolutely. Okay. Here we go. Okay, sir. And, uh, <laughs> folks, uh, we will go to a musical break here, and we'll be back uh, with Ragnar Benson. And I said before, if you want to find a lot of demons, go to church. There you can be sure you'll find a bunch. They're roosting all over God's people. They're binding them down. They're choking them off. And somebody has to care because people are bound. And if it isn't the chosen of God, I don't know who's going to care. If it isn't those whom God has called out, if they don't care enough to lay their lives on the line, I don't know who's going to do it. As a sad scripture says, I looked for a man and I found none. God looked for a man. He couldn't find anybody. Everybody was doing their own thing. God is calling a people to war, all-out war. A war in which no quarter is given and no quarter is asked. The order of the day remains. Attack, attack, attack. That's God's marching order. That is God's marching order. In the spirit world, uh, we are to occupy till the Lord comes. And I do believe that uh, we should also you be prudent. And uh, you know, think about some practical things, too. Uh, what do you do when the uh, the things you've been accustomed to are no longer available. What happens when you go to the grocery store and the shelves are bare? Uh, maybe you'll remember the conversation we're having tonight, but it might be too late. Uh, when we could have done something, we didn't do something. We trust our government that they're going to take care of us. Well, I'll tell you, they have a contingency plan for you and I. It's called the FEMA Food Lines. And uh, when you're hungry enough, you'll take anything that they want you to take, a mark of the beast, um, an ID card, you know, whatever it is that they want you to sign up for. Because, uh, you know, they've got you in a very vulnerable position. You know, your stomach is hurting. Uh, you said, I, I don't care to learn anything about farming. Um, I don't want to grow a crop. What are you talking about? I don't even like vegetables. You know, give me my McDonald's. <laughs> I mean, that's we, we, that's what we are, folks. We want everything now. We want it done for us. And uh, we just, you know, want to have our uh, entertainment. But uh, those things don't matter. When the rubber meets the road, you better have food, clothing, shelter, clean water, and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, because we're going into some hard times here. And so this was kind of a little different program tonight. But uh, I'm very intrigued with uh, Ragnar Benson. 
um, a man who has written over 46, 47 books on a variety of subjects, knows a lot. He's traveled the world. He's got a different perspective. Um, he hasn't uh, seen things through the filter that most of us have seen the world through, the television sets. He's been out there. Um, many things that we take for granted are actually myths. You know, He's been there and saw that it's not the way they programmed us to think. And uh, So traveling certainly broadens your horizons. I can say that uh, for myself as well. Let's get Ragnar back on the line. I'm here with you, Bruce. Amen. So, uh, okay. Yes, I love to, uh, to travel. I know you do, Ragnar. Now, you spend uh, the better part of a year outside the country. Now, are you still working, or are you retired and you just love to enjoy other climates and so forth? Um, the, the, uh, the quick answer to that, uh, Bruce, is uh, my uh, wife is a Hebrew scholar, and she finds in the traditional Hebrew there is no word for retirement, which <laughs> means God does not recognize that, uh, that enterprise, that activity. Oh. Amazing, uh, Hebrew scholar. Wow. Yeah. So uh, I take you taking several trips to Israel. We try and uh, spend a month a year there. Wow. Uh, any particular part there you like? Do you like uh, Jerusalem? Well, you, the, you like over in Haifa? <laughs> what do you like? <laughs> well, it, uh, it, it, Israel is so small. The answer is yes. Um, I usually <laughs> have some specific places I like to go to. The uh, last time we went again, I think for the third time to the Qumran caves, and. Uh, and went and visited that, and then we went down to the uh, the ancient copper mines uh, down nearly a lot, and uh, so uh, and then I always uh, get uh, goosebumps every time I drive up the hill, up the mountain into Jerusalem, and it's not because of the horrible traffic and the the crazy Israeli drivers, it's because of the uh, history and so forth there, so uh, I, I enjoy that a lot. Amen to that. Now, are you a, a Bible-believing man? What's your uh, I am. I am, uh, yes, very definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. That's yeah. awesome. Now, would you consider yourself Christian? Or are you Jewish? What are you? Christian. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, I have uh, a number of friends who are Messianic Jews. Really? And, yeah. So I, I, I tend to uh, to enjoy their company. That is fantastic. I take the, uh, the uh, uh, Bruce, I take the Bible very literally. When we talk about six-day creation, I believe it was six-day. When we talk about a universal flood, I know it was a universal flood. We talk about blood uh, atonement, I know that, that that's important. And I know salvation occurs by uh, grace. So uh, that's pretty well my the- theology right there. Well, man, praise the Lord. Um... We uh, we normally do uh, ministry on the Omega Man radio show, but uh, I branched out a little bit, and sometimes we we do other subjects. And I didn't know where your belief stood. Well, praise God for that. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, that might surprise you, but uh... that is that's awesome. So, uh, where do you believe we are in the timeline uh, before the return of Jesus Christ? What's your personal belief? Do you well, think Christians will go through yeah, a tribulation the, uh, or get out of it, or what? Well, uh, Israel is back in the land. But they're back in an unsaved, unbelieving condition, and so that can change rather quickly. And uh, and so uh, if we're uh, right now, uh, it looks like, uh, given uh, the situation in Greece and in Ireland and in uh, Portugal and in Spain, and people don't talk about Belgium, but they're uh, about ready to collapse as well. Really, the uh, economy of the world may collapse, and. Uh, and they uh, 
and we may be uh, in for hard times much faster than we uh, we think we might. Uh, especially given how look at how fast uh, the the Soviet Union disappeared. You know that just have virtually happened overnight, didn't it? It did. Yeah, this thing, some of this stuff can happen awfully, awfully fast. And you're talking the transition from the uh, the communist rule to what uh, Glasnost? Yeah, yeah, the communist uh, uh, the communist society, the crony capitalism, is really what it is. Yeah, or um, I'm is, going to assume most of the listeners know what crony, crony capitalism is. Now, uh, uh, and if you take a country like Estonia is a good example, and uh, the Czech Republic is another good example, that's very much a Christian country now. Really? There is a great deal of, uh, boy, I, I'm, I don't have the right word just at this point, but... Uh, there are uh, in little tiny uh, Czech Republic. There are over twelve hundred Christian churches. Man, so there's like a reawakening over there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas over here, we're, we seem to be turning apostate. I mean, even our president yeah, says right. it's no longer yeah, a Christian it, it, nation. We've become a pagan nation. Yeah, that's right. Man, it's like a role reversal. I mean, even uh, Castro and uh, uh, Castro and Chavez and these others have said, "Man, you're more communist than us." Way to go. Comrade, <laughs> I mean, no, it's I have, terrible. I've noticed, uh, Bruce, we're almost out of time, and I, I think uh, a quick, uh, a couple of quick philosophical comments. Uh, at uh, uh, in, in terms of survival and preparedness, you've got to take personal responsibility for your uh, your, your what you're doing, and the three faults with our society is, uh, as I see it is that we want it now, it's not my fault, and I'm deserving. I want it now, it's not my fault, and I am deserving. I am deserving of uh, a government that will provide medical care for me or uh, provide food for me, provide shelter for me, provide uh, for my bad decisions in buying too big a house or whatever. Anywhere, I'd like to leave with those three comments. Let me ask you a question, Ragnar, uh, as we're wrapping up here. Um, what is your belief as a, as a believer in Jesus Christ? Uh, will we go through the persecution and tribulation period, or are you looking to go out in a pre-trib rapture? I, I, I think that we're going to go out uh, what uh, would, I, we're, there will be some uh, tribulation and so forth that will go through the th- first three and a half years of the seven and uh, before God's wrath starts, but we won't go through uh, God's wrath. Are you looking uh, to he, see the the day of the mark of the beast, or you think you yeah. will be gone by that time? Yeah, I think we will. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Any yeah, advice I on do. how to uh, survive during that time when you can't buy or sell? Read your scripture and be alert to times and the seasons. Isn't that what it says in Revelation one through four? It does. Now, uh, do you believe America is in time Babylon? I don't think. Uh, that, boy, there's been many discussions, uh, probably on your program, even uh, uh, Bruce. Many discussions on that issue as America in the scriptures and so forth. And uh, and some folks say, well, the scriptures mentions the islands of the sea. That could be America. And I don't really see America in the scriptures. Do you see a time where, That's right. um, as an American, it may be prudent to uh, get out of Dodge and live abroad? Or do you think uh, this is as good a place as any to uh, to weather the storm? Well, I wouldn't know where you would go. Uh, uh, having been 
been there, done that, uh, I would think uh, your only possibility might be extremely remote, uh, isolated Argentina. You might find a place there where you could uh, put in a uh, uh, living quarters with a well and uh, find some river water and uh, have some ground around you to raise crops on and so forth. Um, other than that, uh, uh, boy, I could, don't know where you'd go. So you've, you've checked out most of the places, and everything has a shelf life, as I've come to, to determine. Yeah. Um, just be, in the, be where God wants you to be is the safest place to be. We need to each seek him individually for that. What's next for Ragnar Benson? What's your plans? Are you going to write more books? Um, I, I don't have any in mind right in, immediately right now. I do uh, a few magazine articles now and then uh, that you might see uh, published. But I, I, generally, I rely on uh, readers' mail uh, to you know, with book suggestions. Okay, Somebody and will we, write and suggest. That's why I did how to survive the coming plagues. Awesome. Um, so, Ragnar, uh, um, tell people how they can get a hold of your books, please. Okay, the uh, best uh, for how to survive the coming plagues. That's a uh, venture press. And that you can be found on his Amazon. That's the quickest, the easiest, and the least expensive. Now, as far as uh, Paladin Press, P-A-L-A-D-I-N, Paladin Press, and if you Google Paladin Press or Google Ragnar Benson, you're going to find me. And uh, Paladin Press has an 800 number. In a minute, I'll, uh, I'll give folks a chance to get a, a piece of paper and a pen. And they also can be found on the web. It's paladin-press.com. Paladin-press.com. I'm sure if you just uh, Google Paladin Press, you'll get there. Now, their toll-free order number is 1-800-392-2400. Awesome. Okay, so Amazon.com and Paladin Press. And give out that number one more time, please. Okay, the uh, order number is 1-800-392-2400. Okay, now, uh, Ragnar, if someone would like to contact you, they've got a question, uh, would like to make a suggestion, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, the best way to reach me uh, um, is, the first off, be aware, don't get too excited. I'm, I'm gone eight months of the year. Uh, and so uh, <laughs> the best, uh, best is to send to the uh, Paladin Press, in uh, care of Ragnar Benson. Okay. Or to Ragnar Benson in care of Paladin Press. I got it backwards. And then they will hold the letters for me, and when I get back in the country, they're immediately there. Well, man, that is that is awesome. What a, what an interview this has been. I didn't know all this. Uh, we just probably scratched the surface. Uh, I take a long time to get around to my point, so we'll need to do a couple more interviews to cover all the things I'd like to talk about. Uh, uh, in closing, Ragnar, would you, uh, would you honor us tonight and close in prayer? No, but you, would you like to do that? Go ahead. Ab, no, absolutely. Would you would you honor us and you pray? Oh, um, you want me to? Absolutely. Okay, all right. Okay, here we go. Lord, we thank you for your work of your Son on the cross. We thank you for this opportunity to live in this free country. We pray, Lord, for our country as you've commanded us to, for our leaders and those in authority over us. We pray, Lord, that we'd be alert to the times and the seasons, that we might uh, live for a time yet in peace and freedom. Thank you very much uh, for this opportunity, and thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God for you, Ragnar. It's good to know okay. we've got a believer out there. 
Uh, enjoy All right. uh, the program, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for taking the time and coming on the program tonight. Okay, well, thank you, Bruce. Take care. God bless you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Folks, that was Ragnar Benson, and uh, you can uh, obtain his books at Amazon.com and also PaladinPress.com. Did you know that I did not know that Ragnar was a Christian? I had no idea. You know, a lot of people that um, are into survivalism, uh, really they're looking to um, rely on the arm of the flesh. And you don't hear a lot about uh, God in the equation. And so I just wrongly assumed. And here we have, we've got a prolific author, written a lot of interesting titles. Uh, Go Google it and you'll see all the different books that he's come out with over the years. And I had the totally wrong picture. He's a believer in Jesus Christ. Praise God. Um, but what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his soul? Uh, praise God for for Ragnar. I mean, that's uh, that's actually exciting. Um, and uh, how cool that is. Well, you never know what kind of show we're going to do here. Uh, I'm taking all kinds of new directions. Of course, we're going to uh, continue to let our emphasis be the Deliverance Ministry, Spiritual Warfare. But uh, I'm trying to branch out a little bit, too, and uh, bring in some different uh, guests. We're going to even try to get uh, Jesse Ventura on. Um, we're working on that. I put out a, a request to Chuck Norris. We've got a couple uh, musicians that I'd like to bring on, Brian Head Welch. Uh, he might be coming on uh, soon. Uh, I did get a hold of his uh, uh, press agent, and they said that... Uh, he would uh, love to call on the program. He's just been traveling. Uh, you never know what you might get. In fact, I might even break out in song on one of these shows. <laughs> so uh, where are we going this weekend? Uh, tomorrow night, Saturday, 8 p.m., we're going to have the School of Deliverance with Pat Holiday. That is our regular fixture every Saturday night, the School of Deliverance at 8 p.m. Uh, we open up the lines. If you need prayer, uh, Sunday night we're going to have uh, the School of Intercessory Warfare Prayer. What do I mean by that? Well, we get together. If you haven't uh, heard that show before, uh, we get people around the world together, and we just start praying. You know, we pray for the economy. We pray for the schools. We pray for uh, the governments. Uh, we do spiritual warfare. We bind and loose like Jesus gave us authority to the keys of the kingdom. We bind these foul spirits operating in the men and women around the globe, and uh, we we fight in the spirit. Uh, you can't fight in the arm of the flesh, folks. It just doesn't work. You're overpowered. But, you know, um, one man, one woman can make a difference when you pray. So that's what we do. And that's, of course, the first hour of each program, Saturday and Sunday night. Uh, teaching, instruction, you know, we, we pray, case of Sunday night, and then we open up the lines. And if you need prayer, if you need um, deliverance, if you need healing, you know, all these things are available through Jesus Christ and Father God. And you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is what these programs are for. Saturday and Sunday night we do ministry. Uh, we will have a double feature Sunday night. We're going to have conversations from the backside of the desert. Uh, campfire chat. <laughs> Many of us feel like we've been on the outside of the desert for some time. You know, God uh, sent uh, Paul to the to the desert and he got schooled in the Holy Spirit for about three years over in Arabia. John the Baptist was camping out in the backside of the desert. And uh, many of us are being called uh, called out. Uh, God has said it's time to go to work. 
Maybe you feel the call on yourself right now. Maybe he is separating you from everything that uh, you thought was important and saying, uh, I may strip it all away from you for a time and a season. I want you to focus in on me. So that's what we're doing. Uh, some of us that are on the backside of the desert, we're going to get together. We're going to talk about uh, issues among the, the brethren and, uh, you know, just you know what's on our heart and uh, you know, get updates, what's going on with everybody, and, uh, you know, just let the Holy Spirit flow. And, of course, we're going to open up the lines. If you need prayer, uh, we will pray. And it's always our honor and privilege to uh, be able to pray with you. And, again, we're just uh, conduits, folks. We are bond servants of Christ. It's Jesus Christ who sets man free. People get filled by the Holy Spirit power of God. And, uh, you know, God is on the throne still. Nothing that is happening is a surprise to him. You know, he's not running around in a panic and reaction mode. You've got to understand that everything that is going on, part of God's plan. God even, you know, uh, has vessels of honor, and then he creates vessels of dishonor. Would you believe that? I believe that's what the Word says. You know, uh, you certainly want to be a vessel of honor. I wouldn't want to be a vessel of dishonor or be one that he hardened his heart. Like uh, Pharaoh, you know, because God needed to uh, show Israel his power and uh, that he was a redeemer. He had a plan. Um, At any rate, my point is nothing is a surprise to God. That's my point I'm trying to make. And as a result, if we will... Understand that, that uh, God knows what time it is. If we put our faith and trust in him and his son, Jesus Christ, we can make it through. We can be overcomers. And, you know, what do we have to fear? Though, um, you know, man, destroy your body. Be absent from the body. Be present before God. You don't fear man who can do that. Fear Fear him who can destroy the body and then your soul in hellfire. If we're making God happy, that's all that matters. Because it's a terrible thing to fall in the hands of an angry God. And we all got to keep ourselves in check, starting with me. I have to repent on a daily basis. God, forgive me for not doing what you wanted to do, me to do. You know, for, for the mistakes I make. Um, you know, for failing in areas. Just ask for mercy. You know, what we've got to do is find out what God's plan is. Get busy about his plan. If we're busy about the Lord's plan, he'll take care of the rest, you know. Seek first the kingdom of God. All these other things shall be added unto you, right? I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their seed begging bread. Isn't that what David said? Amen? So uh, what's my point here? My point is, yeah, we are in some terrible times, but as Ragnar Benson said, it shouldn't come as any surprise. We should see the signs and know that uh, time is short. Um, I hope we get out of here early. You know, my grandmother would argue the point that uh, she believes there's going to be fruit gatherings, that the true bride of Christ will be extricated before the really hard times. Well, if that's the case, I would say, um, awesome. Get out of here early. In my own particular belief, I believe that when it says we don't get out of here to the last trump, um, that's what it means. 
Jesus comes back at the last trump. Now, men is not appointed to the wrath of God, right? But it did say we'll suffer persecution and tribulation. In fact, it said you can count on it. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And uh, we've got a rough road ahead, folks. Many people are going to be tried in the fire of affliction. And we're going to be forced to make the decision. Did we really mean what we said when we said, uh, you know, Lord Jesus, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll give my life for you. You know, many people can say that. Uh, would you do it? You know, if they said, uh, renounce Christ, we're taking your head off. What would you do? Would you Would you renounce him to save your head? Some of us may have to make that decision. You know, many will be beheaded for Christ. We'll have to wash their robes. Uh, my point is, I believe that uh, many are going to be go through the persecution. And Jesus said, watch and pray. You know, that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things and stand before for, for the Son of Man. Um, I think that what it's talking about there is to escape uh, the pitfalls that are going to take many people into the great falling away and they're cause them to fall away. It's clear we're going to suffer for Christ. Question is, uh, will you weather through it? Will you endure till the end? Okay, or will you knee jerk and say, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. To heck with that. I'm not losing my head. What do you mean? I, I can't buy or sell without the mark. I'm taking the mark. You know, I mean, there's going to be many people do that because all they thought about Christianity was it was just, uh, you know, like hitting the the lottery. You know, we have a we have a father to give us anything that we want. If we sow enough seed, you know, we can you know live like kings down here. Some some people have that philosophy. You know, we're, we're, I'm a child of the the king. I, I'm a prince. You know, I'm not supposed to uh, live in an apartment. You know, give me my mansion. I'm supposed to have my own private Learjet. You know, folks, that's just, that's just not the way it is. Jesus didn't have a Learjet. Jesus said the foxes uh, and the birds of the air, they have holes, you know, sleep in a nest. I'm paraphrasing, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, you know. The Lord God will deliver you out of them all. I believe we can be delivered, but um, it doesn't mean that we're not going to have to suffer or see some hard times. Am I rambling here? You know, I didn't have sugar for my coffee, so I didn't get to drink the, the whole coffee tonight. I just had half and half. <laughs> uh, what am I saying here? I am saying that uh, persecution is coming. And with the persecution comes offense for many people out there. They're going to be offended. They don't like what's happening to them. It came as a shock. It came like a thief in the night. They weren't expecting it, and it just busted down their door. And they said, uh-oh, caught me off guard. So they're going to take the path of least resistance. For many, that's going to be to uh, deny Christ. Right? Wrong choice if we do that. It's a one-way ticket to hell. Um, we cannot reject Christ because Christ said, if you reject me before men, I will reject you before my Father, which is in heaven. We've got to be prepared. Now, 
I believe that God wants us to wake up. Okay? I believe he wants us to know the signs of the time, to be prudent, and some of us may be asked to sacrifice ourselves for Christ. There's others that I believe can endure. You know, through persecution, God will make a way. There's got to be someone down here to do his work. Um, You know, only God knows our ultimate end. One thing's for sure. Whatever it is, if you will stay true to the Lord and um, not deny him, then uh, when you step out of this body, absent bodies, be present with God. You know, we've got a reward waiting for us. So it's going to be a tough road ahead. Um, I personally am walking in for the long haul. And, you know, knowing that we've got some stuff ahead, let's just get busy about the Lord's business. Just get get to work. And uh, one guy said, I don't really care when the, the Lord returns. If he comes back in the rapture, great. He said, actually, I need more time, you know. I'm not even looking at the clock. Do you ever remember having a job where you didn't have to look at the clock? You know, there's some jobs that are just so terrible that you're all, you're looking up, you know, is it 5 o'clock yet? Um, you know, you're looking up every 15, 20 minutes. That's, that's pretty bad existence. What about the job? Do you remember the job that you would look at the clock and say, thank God, I need more time. It's not 5 yet. Um, that's actually a good situation to be in. I've had a couple of jobs like that. <laughs> I didn't figure there was enough time in the day. I always, uh, the clock beat me before I could finish what I was doing. You know, um, that's what that one guy's attitude was. He says, please, I don't want the rapture. I've got work to do right now because the more work I do, the bigger reward will be waiting in heaven. Think about it, folks. Okay? If you could punch out right now, and let's say you haven't done much for the Lord. I haven't done much in my life, I'm ashamed to say. I could punch the, the button and go to heaven. Well, okay, you, you got, you, you're in heaven. Praise God for that. Okay? But what reward do you have waiting for you when you get there? Do you think everybody's going to have the same reward? It's not communism in heaven, folks. It's not everybody is equal. Now, yes, you got into heaven. You've got eternal life. Praise God. But um, would it be fair for someone who gave 50 years of their life to the service of the Lord uh, and have the same reward as the man who lived it up and then made a split decision for Christ at, on his deathbed? And, and use, you know that's if God shows you mercy. Some people have cried out to the Lord and haven't made it. The Holy Spirit didn't draw them. It's too late. You know, no, no man can go to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draw him. What I'm saying here is, yeah, they both made it into heaven. You know, God pays the same wages, right? Eternal life, but there is difference in rewards. There's going to be the, you know, the great white throne judgment. You know, the the wicked uh, that, you know, die in their sin, okay? Like right now, if you die and you didn't know Christ, you're down in hell, okay? You're in in prison like Bill Weiss saw for 28 28 minutes in hell. And, uh, you know, you're waiting, you're sentencing, it's like, you want to know what heaven's like? You ever been to court? You go up there and they've got the judge. That's Father God on the throne. You've got the accuser and you've got the defense attorney. What am I saying here? I'm saying that uh, people are going to stand before God and give an accounting. And if they didn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they get cast in the lake of the fire. But what about the believers? 
you get into heaven, right? Okay? But there's rewards. There's different crowns. I mean, look, it even talks about the martyr's crown. It's a special crown. Um, you know, there's different talents handed out. What about the parable of the talents, you know? One, five, ten talents? What did you do with what God gave you? If you were a good steward, you're likely to have a, a more reward waiting for you, you know? What about the thousand-year millennial reign? That's interesting, isn't it? If you'd be you know, kings and priests and rulers... Um, someone who has given their all to the Lord and is out there working or it's one that just wants to get in by the skin of the teeth yeah there's going to be rewards given out we don't understand all the dynamics of that but uh, I think that's only fair that's why um, I hope we have a little bit more time I would like to do something for the Lord I would like to plant some seed it says put up your treasure in heaven remember that? Or where the rust and the moth and the thief can't steal and corrupt it and rust it. Um, yeah, there's treasure in heaven, folks. And it's what you do down here with what God gave you that will determine what's waiting for you in heaven. I believe that. Again, salvation is numero uno. But then after that, um, wow. Do you want to be seated at the marriage supper table or do you want to be serving is that interesting huh did you know there's some that are serving and some are seated I believe wow told my father that I said dad you can make it in I know that you've accepted Christ but uh, you know you had a lot of opportunity to do something I would recommend you start doing something because your time is limited or do you want to just get in heaven and live in a pup tent on the back of court <laughs> so I mean, it's an honor and a pleasure to do something for the Lord. You know, one day I asked him, I said, God, give me a job. I want a job in your kingdom. I'd like to do something for you. Uh, and if you ask him that, he will give you something to do. You know, he uses people in various and sundry ways. There's all kinds of different jobs in God's kingdom. He doesn't call everybody to do the same thing. Everybody is unique and has different uh, different attributes. So, you know, he'll use you. He's just looking for, for you know, Men and women that are willing to say, hey, I'll roll up my sleeves, and I'm not concerned about saving my skin. You know, I want to do some work. I want to bring some souls. And it says that he that saves souls is wise. Right? So um, that's uh, what I want to do. I want to basically be working until my end. Um, and then he can say, well done, my good faithful servant. Enter in, you know, Enter into my kingdom. That's why I hope we have more time, because uh, I certainly haven't done much with my life. I don't know about you. I'd like to do more. I wish we had another 50 years. I don't think we do. Of course, it looks like uh, you know we're on the countdown. I, I've talked and had uh, private conversations with some uh, men and women of God and got their take, and some believe the uh, you know tribulation is getting ready to kick off 2012. They believe uh, it all winds up 2019. Others thought it was kicking off this year. I I was uh, thinking it's very possible. I know Michael Rood had a timetable. He said it's very possible. If you see the Zachariah War hit hit before the end of this year, he said I believe that I pinpointed the timeline and we got about seven years left. That would put us at about 2017. So there's some say 2017, 2019. Some say that the Lord doesn't come back until the 
you know, um, Jubilee, and you know they're they're putting it, you know, they're another twenty, forty years away. I just don't know. But like the guy said, whether Jesus Christ were to come back uh, next year or you know in fifty years, I'm going to be busy about the Lord's business. I'm not really worried about the times and the seasons uh, because I know it's got to happen. And the real question is, what am I doing with my time? You know. But one thing I will tell you is understand that. Um, God wants us to be prepared to endure whatever comes. Be busy about his business. Not have a a, a heart attack because uh, something caught us off guard that we weren't uh, prepared for. And persecution is coming as sure as I'm sitting here talking to you and I. Unfortunate part for us in America that, uh, you know, uh, I'm waking up to is um, it's a, it's a new concept. We really haven't had to suffer here. Some of these other countries, like Romania, they've already had their Chescu back in the 80s, where, you know, you could have been arrested to have a Bible. And I don't look forward to the day. I mean, I don't look forward to now having to take a, a flight and uh, basically strip down naked in front of an x-ray machine. You get a low-level dose of radiation, you know. I'll opt for the, uh, the hand search, but, uh, I mean, that's terrible. Some people are not going to even fly now. I don't blame them. If I can take a car to get to a destination, I'll do that before I'll fly. Rather than have to be subjected to this, uh, you know, this shakedown that's occurring. You know, and they're just taking our rights bit by bit. And, you know, what they take, you usually don't get back. And that's why we're in such desperate times right now. Well, back to Ragnar Benson. He's got a lot of interesting books on how to survive off the grid. If you've got a little bit of property, uh, what you can do to live off the grid, uh, grow your own food, you know, do a lot of things like that. I, I've been around the country. I've seen some people that uh, are operating with uh, things like uh, solar power, wind power, LP gas, things like that. Um, and, you know, maybe they were living in the city before, but they saw the sign of the times. They decided to do something about it. I give them some credit there. How long it'll last, I don't know. That they'll be able to even live on their own land. But uh, at least they did something about it. At least they tried. And I believe that's all that God expects us to do. Do the best with what he's given us. Don't deny him. And be busy about his business. And what is his business? Evangelizing. Leading people to Christ. Casting out demons. In Jesus' name. Laying hands on the sick. There's a lot of sick people right now. But God is able to heal. And uh, I believe there's a time coming where you'll be able to raise the dead. Dr. Pat Holliday has seen five people raised from the dead. Praise God for her. And that happens in these other countries. You don't see much over here because of our lack of faith. We, we're taught to believe that, uh, oh, that's not for today. That was just for the disciples 2,000 years ago. God doesn't heal anybody anymore. And devils, I don't want to talk about devils, you know. I don't want to give Satan too much uh, credit. That tells me, folks, that uh, that person uh, doesn't know their Bible. Okay, and they're just a sitting duck. Satan has them right where he wants them. And when he decides to push their button and they manifest, um, they're going to be in a desperate situation. 
because they're not going to even realize what is triggering. They'll probably think, oh, I'm having a mental breakdown. I need to go take drugs. That's how it's going to be. And then they're going to push themselves off the into the abyss. Drugs, pharmakia, was one of the sins of end-time Babylon, which I know is America. Folks, we are end-time Babylon. I put my money with Dimitri Dudeman. Put on the electric chair three times, smuggled more Bibles into Romania and Russia than any other man ever lived. Saw angels. They gave warning of what's coming. It's been collaborated by other men and women of God. Henry Groover, David Wilkerson, Dr. Jonathan Hansen, Benjamin Brooke. They've seen what's coming. So uh, I hope we have more time here. We should certainly pray for America that God will give us more time. We're basically, we're ba- we're basically uh, fools if we look for the day of the Lord and we ask that it be hastened. This can be a terrible time. You can read uh, what happens during the day of the Lord in the Word of God. Terrible time. Uh, I'm not looking forward to that day. I would like to uh, have a few more days of peace, but it seems that window is narrowing, narrowing very rapidly things are deteriorating i was really surprised when i saw the price of gold today i said wow i went over to steve quill's website and looked at the price of gold what fourteen hundred twelve dollars an ounce almost thirty dollars an ounce of silver wow man it wasn't long ago you could get it for twelve dollars yeah i remember gold when you could get it at uh six hundred seven hundred dollars and that well that was you know 2005. Some of you maybe remember when it was a lot lower than that, but things seem to be accelerating, and as gold and silver go up, that's a bad sign. It means the dollar is collapsing. I don't know if they can patch it together. I really don't. Maybe they'll, you know, thread it along a little bit, a little bit longer. But one thing for certain, even if they keep this thing going, at least the appearance, semblance of uh, stability. It's undeniable. People are losing their jobs. They're losing their homes. Prices are going up on things. And so, you know, bit by bit, it takes people out of the system. Puts them into a real desperate time. Um, And it's just going to get worse and worse. What the total time between now and total collapses, I just don't know. I thought it was already going to be over. In fact, when I mentioned about doing some preparations, I did some of these, uh, like many of you, back in you know, 1999 before Y2K. And even the government was saying that uh, the crash was inevitable. So, better to be safe than sorry, right? Isn't that the gold rule, you know, prevention? And now, you know, um, once again, we're, we seem to be revisiting that time. Shortages, price hikes. Uh, someone told me in pre-show that uh, there was a show with Jesse Ventura tonight. I think it was Rich. He told me that uh, they're taking the fresh water from the Great Lakes and it's being exported to China. Is that true? It's almost inconceivable, but, you know, nothing surprises me now. Maybe it's cheaper 
distill our fresh water than it would be to desalinate the uh, the salt water. You know, um, heard there's a drought in Israel. Russia is having issues with wheat. Uh, I thought I heard a report that most of our wheat had been sold from the West Coast, put on uh, tanker ships, and exported. What's going on out there, folks? We, we we selling everything to the highest bidder? Will we sell ourselves to the highest bidder? Will we be like the dearth in the land in Joseph's time? There's a dearth on the whole land. First, they, they took your money for corn. Then when you ran out of money, they took your uh, your cattle. And then when you had no cattle to sell, you sold yourself into slavery. Except, as I said before, we don't have Joseph as number two in command. I think we have Pharaoh. We've got some pretty wicked people in government. And I think you all know me pretty well by now. I'm not racist. I believe it didn't just start with Obama. It goes way back. Probably back to Lyndon B. Johnson, who I believe was uh, part and parcel in the assassination of JFK, along with uh, Bush Sr., nicknamed Poppy Bush, used to be director of the CIA back in 1976. Interesting, huh? George Bush Sr., George Bush Jr., Bill Clinton. Yeah, it's been Bush or Clinton for, what, 20 years? Just about? It's crazy. Now we've got Obama. Nobody even knows who he who he really is. Is he Barry Satoro? Is is he Obama? Is his name Osama? Is he Osama bin Laden? I don't know. Where is Osama bin Laden? Think about that. Have you ever heard of anybody to survive this long who had uh, the need of double dialysis? I know a lady who has dialysis, and literally, um, you know, she spends hours upon hours hooked to the machine every week. There's very little she can do. And we're supposed to believe they're doing that to him over in a cave somewhere? Come on. That was Tim Osmond. He was a, a CIA agent. He was dead by September 11th. Nothing new, folks. We've got a, uh, a terrible history here in our American intelligence community, abutting our nose into uh, problems that we shouldn't have gotten involved in. Putting in puppet dictators that would torture people. The people weren't the better for it, but it was just so we could control the region. Now, I'm a freedom-loving American, okay, but I think we've done some things wrong. And we've got a really bad rap with many nations. Now, Ragnar... Uh, he told me uh, some things about overseas, so I'm, I'm still hopeful that uh, you know we're, we're not hated everywhere. But I can tell you, we need to mind our business, okay? We've got people here in this country that are starving out there, living in tent city, under bridges. Trying to make it the best thing, way they can. Or if they're not there, they're about to be there. They just don't know it yet. Because that is the ultimate plan to cripple America. The New World Order has to take us out to get their agenda pushed through. Ultimately, what they want to do is they want to take the land, and they want you and I to be serfs. 
they don't really want to nuke this country because if they did that, they would lose all this valuable farmland. If they were going to detonate a bomb in this country, probably a neutron bomb. You know the neutron bomb? It kills the people, but it keeps the infrastructure alive. But that's not even the plan. I believe what they're going to do is they're going to stage uh, terrorist events, terror events, like 9-1-1, okay, um, to keep ripping away our freedoms to the point that we're in a total surveillance society, total lockdown. Go get the movie Soil and Green. Was that before some of your time? Great movie, by the way. There's a few movies that make the Omega Man cry. And there's a scene in there, actually two of them with Charlton Heston. And I'll shed a tear if I see it. Uh, it's sad. The man had never tasted an apple. They were eating soil and green. And he's sitting there with Edgar G. Robinson, who, incidentally, that was his last movie before he died. And uh, they're sitting there, and they're just uh, they're enjoying the simple things. An apple. A piece of broccoli. Because things were so terrible uh, that things have been destroyed. They're, you know, It was all controlled by corporations. No private gardens anymore. It was all processed foods. Yeah, great movie. Soylent Green. Really interesting. Also, I like Ben-Hur. You know the scene where Charlton Heston you know, plays Judah Ben-Hur, is taken over and he's uh, being taken to the... Uh, slave ships, and along the way he's in the uh, chains, and you've got that uh, Roman soldier who makes them all stop for a water break, and, uh, you know, they're all parched and thirsty. In fact, I'm thirsty, too. You know you're dehydrated when your lips are dry. I think I mentioned that last night. Your body robs the water out of your uh, your system, including your lips. Well, so he's so thirsty, you know, his his mouth is caked with dust and uh, he's waiting for his turn and someone gets ready to give him a a gourd of water and that Roman soldier grabs it out of his hands and it's like uh, that was all the energy he could muster just to reach up for the gourd now it's been ripped out of his hands and the guy says none for him and then you see Jesus walk up you don't see his face but you know who it is you see the master walk up and reach down and give them that uh, gourd of water. And then the uh, the Roman guard wants to beat him until he looks into Christ's eyes and he stops there and he can't move. That's a moving scene right there. Yeah, there's a couple scenes like that. Uh, a little bit congested here. I bind this congestion in Jesus' name. Soil and Green, Ben-Hur, you never know where we may go on uh, Omega Man Radio. I don't know how many of you are even listening right now. Maybe I'd just like to hear myself talking. Um, yeah, I'm a big movie buff. Yeah, that, that, was, uh, that, was, that made me cry. Actually, the, the, uh, the Mel Gibson movie about Christ, uh, I did cry. I actually cried in the theater. I'm actually a pretty emotional person, you know? I've got a one side of my family, um, my mom's side, where we're all affectionate, you know? You know, you hug everybody, you kiss everybody. My dad's side, very dry. Thank God, me and my brother, um, 
you know, we're we're affectionate. We're not dry. <laughs> I will try to give him one of my granddads. Uh, I got one granddad living. Uh, I give him a hug, and he, you know, he'll tense up. You know, he's not used to being hugged. And so I just, you know, I really press him for the hug, and I won't let him go. I think he really down deep likes it. He just wasn't, you know, given much love as a child himself, probably. But, um, yeah, movies uh, that will break your heart. Uh, Ben-Hur, Soylent Green, both of them had Charlton Heston in them, as I mentioned. Great actor. In fact, uh, I liked Charlton Heston so much. Uh, Favorite movie, of course, 1967, the original, Planet of the Apes, that uh, I named my son. I have one son. He'll actually be uh, 12 this year. Uh, I named him Heston. Now, that's a unique name. I named him Heston um, after my favorite actor. That was a great movie. Uh, another great movie was uh, The River Runs Through It. Remember that one with Brad Pitt? You remember the scene where his wife and his son, his baby, get shot by that big old uh, thug with the uh, submachine gun? Wasn't that terrible? That's a sad. That's a sad. Oh, I, I think I cried in that one. I'm not sure though, but I, I, I'm trying to remember that one. Did that is touching right there. I think I did the first time I saw. It. Uh, one that I did weep in was uh, Gladiator with Russell Crowe. Remember that one when he comes back and finds his wife and his son hung, and all you see is their legs flapping in the wind. That was sad, wasn't it? Yeah, that was sad. Uh, Kurt Russell, Escape from New York. That was a great movie. That was a classic. That really was. Uh, do you remember the uh, the chief of police there? What was his name? Um, Lee Van Cleef. Wasn't he perfect for that movie? That was cool. The number one was good. Uh, I didn't enjoy um, the remake that they had later on. No, it just didn't have the, the same um, edge to it. You know, the one with uh, Henry Fonda? I mean, uh, uh, Henry Fonda's son. Excuse me, Peter Fonda. Yeah, that was a good movie, though. I like sci-fi. Uh, sci-fi is uh, one of my favorite genres. Uh, I enjoyed Battlestar Galactica, the uh, the one a few years ago. I kind of got into that late. I always kind of watch some of these late, but then I caught up and I watched like three seasons in a week. It was great. Um... Logan's Run. How about that one? You remember the original one? Logan's Run. Peter York. I believe that was 1974-75. Farrah Fawcett. Great movie. I like those sci-fi movies. Uh, Rollerball. 1974. James Caan. That was awesome, wasn't it? Yeah, that was great. Uh, They don't make movies like that today. You know, uh, the movies today, it was all about special effects. I'm tired of special effects crap. I want to see the real stuff. I want to see the real stunt, man. That's what I liked about Jackie Chan. Yeah, I am a little bit old school. You know? Even uh, Rocky's, uh, Rambo's recent movie, um, Stallone's movie, The Expendables, you know, they did have, uh, they had a lot of uh, true action scenes there, but then there was some stuff in there that clearly, you know, uh, you know just too special effect, uh, fake computer animation. 
if you caught some of that, like I did. I don't like that crap. I don't like computer animations. That may be the harshest word I use on this show, crap, but that's really what it is. Give me the give me the true stuff. I have to be very selective right now, though, uh, with the movies that I watch because, again, they are gateways, and uh, they're just it's 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 dangerous these days, you know. Sexual gateways, occultic gateways, got to be careful. But yeah, I was a computer, I was a, a movie addict. Uh, I would go out and see at least two movies a week. Uh, many times I've just been the only one in the theater. Um, got, if you have a question for me, you know, put it here in the chat room. I'll take a crack at it. What do I think of the Kung Fu Champ who bears uh, my name? Yeah, you'd have to go listen to the uh, story about Steve with Steve Bell and I. That that will tell you the mystery of Bruce Lee, Shannon Davis. <laughs> I was the number one Bruce Lee fan in the world. Um, I actually started alt.movies dot Bruce hyphen Lee back when they used to have the uh Usenet groups. It was the world's first Bruce Lee Usenet group. I had the world's first Bruce Lee website called Bruce Lee's Casa. Before I even knew how to speak Spanish. Bruce Lee's Casa. Yep. Uh I went and saw Brandon Lee and Bruce Lee's grave and uh, I was on my way to Mexico. And I've got a picture there, I think up on my Facebook page and actually I put my arms up on both the tombstones. I was sick. Something hit me, and I was sick for three days. Worst case of uh, a viral bug you've ever seen. It was terrible. I'll never forget it. But, um, yeah, I uh, used to be a Bruce Lee uh, fanatic. Uh, I actually was working for the government in 94. I hopped in my truck, and I decided I was going to move to L.A., and I was going to go down and... um, train with Dan Inosanto, which was Bruce Lee's protege. There was only three guys that were sanctioned to carry on Jeet Kune Do, the way of the intercepting fist. That was Dan Inosanto, that was James Lee, and Taki Kimura. Taki Kimura was about 20 years Bruce's senior, and to, you know he died a few years ago. I had a chance to talk to him. He ran a uh, Seattle grocery store and would teach uh, Wing Chun, you know, Bruce Lee, uh, Jeet, uh, Jun Fan Gung Fu style. Uh, in his basement till he died. I actually talked to him. Um, yeah, let's see. That was Taki Kimura. James Lee had died in '74, and that left Dan in the sauna. So I ended up in in Westchester. I go in to um, the area around the airport of Los Angeles, LAX, and there's a little place called Manchester Boulevard. And down there, you will find Dan Inosano's uh, Inosano Martial Arts Academy. I went in there one day, and I walked into this little studio room before you go into the main building, and it was just lined with Bruce Lee photos. I thought it was kind of cool. I said, here I am. I got in there, and I met the instructor, a guy named, what was his name? Uh, it'll come back to me in a minute. Um, turned out to be uh, future son-in-law of Dan Inosano. And... Uh, Rod Balicki was his name. I met him. He was teaching the school back then. I go in, and they had uh, a small Thai boxing ring. And they had the Mook Jong dummies. And what they would do is they would uh, they would teach uh, Jun Fan Gung Fu concepts, Kali Eskrima, Thai boxing. 
Uh, Brandon Lee was number seven ranked in the world, by the way. And they had all these uh, bags on the wall. Well, I see this huge bag. It's so big. You know what a punching bag looks like, right? Take four of those together. It's a big white bag. And before I'd even thought about it, I just punched it. And the guy almost had a heart attack. He looked at me, I looked at him, and he looked up, and I looked, and there's a sign that said, Bruce Lee's punching bag, do not touch. I actually punched his bag. The guy almost had a heart attack right there. Well, never got to meet Brandon Lee. Uh, he died in 93, I believe it was. Um, but I do believe he was killed on the set of The Crow. Um, you know, that was down in uh, North Carolina, the studios where he was doing the uh, production. And uh, while Fun Boy pulled the gun, pulled the trigger, while Fun Boy pulled the trigger. Yeah, you can still hear me, can't you? I'm still here. What I actually believe happened was um, the uh, the stunt coordinator murdered him. See, I believe that uh, Br- Brandon Lee was uh, murdered. Uh, there was some jealousy going on. You know, he was a rising star at that time, and I believe they took him out. No question about it. No, this is still the Ragnar Benson program. <laughs> uh, Ragnar can only be on for two hours, and uh, I'm bored. So I just figured uh, I would go another hour, give you more another hour of Omega Man Radio. <laughs> uh, I didn't get to meet Brandon Lee, though. No, he, um, he uh, I believe he was, he was killed. No question about it. I believe he was murdered intentionally, and it's a shame. Um, but yes, I was a big Bruce Lee fan. And back then, in that time, my goal was to collect uh, martial arts magazines. Uh, I had all types of uh, magazines cataloged. My goal was to have everyone uh, going back to the, the first publication of Black Belt and Inside Kung Fu. Um, but it became an addiction. That's all that I was interested in. Had the world's first Bruce Lee website. You know, I wrote a letter one time and went to Black Belt magazine. Linda Lee got it, and the next thing I know. Um, I got a call one day. An attorney left me a voicemail. Yes, hello. I'm uh, I'm calling for Bruce Lee. This is Adrian Marshall. Uh, I'd like you to call me, please. Now, when you get a message like that in your voicemail from none other than a attorney, that should be cause for concern. I said I must have done something bad here. I'm, I'm getting sued. What did I do? Well, it turned out that uh, I'd written a letter, and Linda Lee got it, and I just said, you know. I believe that uh, Brandon was murdered, and I gave her my opinion. And he said uh, she was impressed, and so she had taken about 20 letters and uh, had told her attorney, Adrian Marshall, which turned out to be the uh, attorney for the Bruce Lee estate, to return the calls. And so I actually got to talk to this guy who was Bruce Lee's attorney and uh, asked him questions that at that time nobody had answers to because I was all into the trivia, you know. You know, such as, uh, you know, well, some things that I maybe I shouldn't go into over the, the air. But, uh, yeah, Bruce Lee was an interesting guy. And uh, talked to his attorney. Uh, talked to Taki Kimura. Yeah, I I, uh, I used to be probably the one of the, the number one trivia buffs uh, in that category. And I realized it was an addiction. You know, and it, there was something wrong uh, with being so obsessed with the man. 
So thank God, God delivered me of that, and uh, I moved on. Every once in a while, though, I kind of revisit it, and, uh, you know, it's interesting. People still idolize this man, but the truth of it is, he was probably the uh, greatest martial artist of all time, but uh, at the height of his physical stamina and his abilities, okay? You know, there's some pretty wild stories of what he would do. Uh, it was the demon inside of him. There's no doubt about it. He had a demon because he talked about a thing called emotional content. You'll hear that phrase in uh, Enter the Dragon, emotional content. And he talked about it uh, would react, and basically his his body would be executing the sidekick and before he even knew it. Yeah, he was definitely uh, demonized. Um, he did yoga. Demons came in, no doubt, that way. I was kind of intrigued in you know, the last days of Bruce Lee. When he goes back, uh, he's finished Enter the Dragon. He's filming Game of Death. You know, his last three months over there. You know, uh, he got really paranoid, actually. He had a, a guy named Bob Baker, which was his uh, bodyguard for some time. And... Uh, Bruce would actually, he smuggled uh, Derringers over in cans of protein powder. Get them in through customs. He carried a forty-five at one time, um, you know, and uh, he started to drink. I believe he did hashish, and he would smoke weed. He probably had a, a reaction to that, actually, a drug, a drug reaction, and uh, it was interesting. Uh, unfortunately, he was, uh, he died in... Um, his girlfriend's penthouse, an ex-hooker, Betty Tingpei. He died and um, was fornicating, so I don't hold out much hope that he made it to heaven. It's unfortunate. The guy's probably in hell right now, screaming, as people continue to idolize him above ground. It's sad and it's sickening. But, you know, all this ability, the money, the fame, and it's over with. Yeah, they are making the uh, the Green Hornet. I will probably go see that. It looks pretty good. I know the guy actually uh, found the Green Hornet and uh, restored it. There were two of those vehicles. Speaking of vehicles, do you remember the movie uh, Damnation Alley, 1977? George Papard and uh, Jan Michael Vincent, one of my favorite actors, actually. Unfortunate parties. He's living in a uh, home somewhere down in, uh, oh, man, down in Mississippi. Um, I don't think he's probably sober an hour out of the day. He's totally fried his brain. We need to pray for Jan Michael Vincent. But uh, Damnation Alley, great movie. I remember that. Do you remember the Landmaster vehicle? It was kind of cool, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I actually tracked the guy down and talked to him. We actually made that vehicle. That was kind of neat. Well, he actually made the uh, the Green Hornet uh, vehicle also. His name was Chuck... Uh, Dean Jeffries was his name. I believe his name is Dean Jeffries. That was the uh, the maker of that cool car. He may have made one from Logan's Run, too. I'm not sure. But, yeah, I used to be involved in all this kind of trivia. Yeah, I actually knew uh, the guy who married Linda Lee after Bruce died, Tom Bleeker. We had uh, some correspondence some time, some time ago. Used to be in all that. You know, I gave it up. I realized martial arts, uh, it's a pathway for, you know, demonic spirits to come in. I'm not, I'm not against uh, being in... You know, good physical shape, but uh, I tried Wing Chun one time. You know, you got to meditate. You know, it's all about Tai Chi, Dim Mac, the uh, delayed death touch, you know, as you get into the deeper levels. But, uh, yeah, 
you know, you look at things you did in the in earlier in life, and you say, "Wow, what was that all about?" You know, everybody goes through these phases. You know, what was your hobby? I used to collect coins. I was a collector. I would collect coins. Um, I started that when I was like six. Coins, and my dad gave me a BB gun when I was like five. I would go around and, uh, yeah, with uh, BBs in a Tupperware container. Uh, I digress. You're making me uh, go way back into the uh, the mental archives. Well, you know, today at 41, I'm just looking for a little bit of happiness. I want to make sure that I'm, uh, you know, God's happy with me. I've got a little bit of peace. And, uh, you know, I realize it all is vanity. You know, if uh gain the whole world and lose your soul. So seek first the kingdom of heaven, and then God will add all these other things to you. We can still have goals and see our dreams and visions fulfilled. God wants us actually to see um, things that uh, we want to do achieved in our lives. we just got to do them in the kingdom order. You know what I mean? Yeah, Batman's car, that was kind of cool. I wouldn't have mind having one of those. That was that was really wild. I know the one you're talking about, that special uh, bubble. That was really cool. Um, there's a couple of those floating around. One of them was over in an Australian junkyard. It had been in a major accident. Someone went over there and found it. Excuse me. Well, we've got two minutes remaining. I see there's still 33 people. Wow. Maybe I should crank it up and go another three hours. We'll delve into the life of the Omega Man. Interesting life. I'll talk sometime, if you remind me, about uh, my father's adventures in Libya, and they knew Muammar Gaddafi. His name was the Black Prince. He uh, he tried to dance with my granny, and my grandfather almost punched out Muammar Gaddafi. My father smuggled uh, six Roman coins back in a sock that he dug out of uh, the uh, the desert in uh, Libya, northern Africa, and I had it for a long time until he repoed it from me. He got angry at me as a little kid, and he took it. And then my dad lost it. Can you believe that? That sucked, man. Well, we're at the end of this program. Uh, It's 2 o'clock. Oh, my goodness. Time flies when you're having fun. Join us tomorrow night for the School of Deliverance, 8 p.m., Dr. Pat Holliday. Open lines, the 9 o'clock hour. And uh, if you need deliverance, you need prayer, we're going to take your calls tomorrow and Sunday night. OmegaManRadio.com, MiracleInternetChurch.com. PatHoliday.com. Check these websites out, wrwpublications.com. And uh, shouts out to what Richard Keltner, Watchman Radio. They're going to have Bob Larson on Saturday night at 11 p.m. God bless everyone. Uh, may he keep you until we meet again. Thank you for listening to Omega Man Radio. Our mission is to operate in the threefold ministry of Jesus Christ and take evangelism, deliverance from demons, and miracle healing to the world. If you would like to partner with us, you can support this work by donating any amount online at OmegaManRadio.com. Join us in an all-out attack against the hosts of hell. It's time to deliver a death blow to the enemy and take back territory for Jesus. Tell a friend and support Omega Man Radio. Radio.